It is my great pleasure this morning to introduce this panel, to introduce our keynote speaker, Franz Deval, one of the most prominent biologists in the world, in my view. This panel is organized by the International Association for the Cognitive Science of Religion and the Cognitive Science of Religion Group in collaboration with the Mind, Society, and Religion in the Biblical World Group. And our keynote speaker is Franz Deval, who is the C.H. Candler Professor of Primate Behavior and Director of the Living Links Center for the Advanced Study of Apes and Human Evolution, of Ape and Human Evolution at Emory. He is also a distinguished professor at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. His research focuses on primate social behavior, cooperation, conflict, and morality. And as an anthropologist, I've really enjoyed uh, reading his work, which consists and contains what I consider to be some of the best ethnographic descriptions that I've ever read of any society, human or otherwise. Franz Duval is a member of the National Academy of Sciences of the U.S. and of the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences. He has received numerous distinctions and awards, including a number of honorary doctorate degrees at various universities, a knighthood in the Netherlands, the medal of the Italian Society of Medicine and Natural Sciences, a Galileo Prize, as well as an Ig Nobel Prize. In 2007, Time magazine featured him as one of the world's 100 most influential people. And in 2011, Discover magazine included him in the list of the great minds of science of all times. He has published scientific articles that are literally too many to count. And if you don't believe me, just have a look at his CV and his website. He's also published over 20 authored and edited books, including award-winning Peacemaking Among Primates, Chimpanzee Politics, Our Inner Ape, and The Bonobo and the Atheist, which is the inspiration for today's panel. So I would like to invite Franz to the stage. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And welcome to Atlanta, which uh, I haven't been here for three weeks, but I hear it has been raining for three weeks, so that's okay. But now you have finally the regular Georgia weather again. Um, I'm not going to say much about religion. I'm not an expert. You are experts on religion. I'm not. Um, the reason I got into religion uh, in the new book, um, The Bonobo and the Atheist, is because uh, each time I talked about the evolution of morality, people bring up religion. And, and so I'll give you a representative quote. This comes from Ben Carson, the famous, um, infamous, or let's <laughs> uh, Republican candidate, who literally says, if you accept evolutionary theory, you dismiss ethics. You don't have to abide by a set of moral codes. You determine your own conscience based on your own desires. And of course, the implication is your own desires are bad. They're not good desires. We don't have good desires. And, and basically, we need to go against our human nature. And this is an old theme in biology. Unfortunately, it's a theme in biology. So um, we, we've had these many views of, uh, of morality. Um, either it comes from God, which is a top-down view, obviously. And then later we got in the Enlightenment, we got it came from philosophers who are going to tell us by reasoning and logic what moral principles to follow. And then more recently, the neo-atheist Sam Harris has said science is going to tell us what morality is and what kind of moral rules to follow. Now, I myself am a scientist, but I don't trust scientists with this kind of business, but that's what he does. 
Uh, and at the moment, we, we are seeing um, a, a, a renaissance of ideas that, a bit sort of David Humean type ideas, is that uh, our, our inner workings and our emotions and our, what he calls the moral sentiments. Uh, so it's a sort of bottom-up view of morality. It's like it comes from within human nature to set up a moral system. And I look at moral systems as basically, and this is the same as Dar what Darwin did, as basically systems that promote cooperation. They, they put community above the individual. And, and they tell individuals, yes, you, you can follow your selfish desires, but you also have to think about community. So in biology, we have this odd view is that natural selection is presented as a struggle for life, even though most of the time it's, it's really not combat between individuals, but it's how it was presented. And um, as a result, we have sort of two schools in biology. One is uh, that it can only produce a superficial type of morality because deep down we are nasty and we are selfish and we are competitive. Uh, so that was one view. And then the second view is that, yes, uh, natural selection can produce almost anything, has produced very social species, and morality is, is, is part of that. Morality is just an outgrowth of, of sociality. The, the first view I call veneer theory, and I associate it with uh, Thomas Henry Huxley, who is, was known as Darwin's bulldog because he was so um, efficient in defending Darwin. Uh, and, but he couldn't believe morality was, was a product of evolution. And so he said it's a departure from nature. It's uniquely human. It's, it's a calculated thing. Uh, and, and so he placed it outside of biology. His big metaphor was the garden and the gardener. The gardener needs to work every day very hard to keep the garden under control because the gardener wants to go wild. And, and that's how he, he looked at morality. Morality keeps human nature under control. Human nature has nothing good to offer apparently and uh, the gardener works every day to beat it back and to keep it under control. This is the most quoted line from that literature in the 70s and 80s where, where this idea was extremely popular. We had the selfish gene after all, which was uh, emblematic for that kind of line of thinking. And, and this is someone who said, scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. And everyone was quoting this uh, basically to prove, they didn't prove anything, but to prove that deep down we are selfish, deep down there's nothing altruistic about humans. Uh, so it, it applied to humans and it certainly also applied to animals. I think I'm going to skip this because I think we have a lot of uh, other people who want to present them. This is a Monty Python sketch that you, you should look up. To, it's called The Banker. Can you just give me the... And, but I'm going to skip it. <laughs> yeah, you want to see it? Okay, okay. I'll, I'll <laughs> so it's a banker who doesn't understand what altruism is. He has no clue what it is and he's being approached to give money to the orphanage. Can you just give me the pan? Yes, but you, you see, I don't know what it's for. <laughs> well, it's for the orphans. Yes. It's a gift. A what? <laughs> a gift. Oh, a gift! A tax dodge! No, 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 I don't understand. Um, can you just explain exactly what you want? Well, I want you to give me a pound, and then I'll go away and give it to the orphans. Yes. <laughs> well, that's it. No, 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 I don't follow this at all. I mean, I'm, I don't want to seem stupid, but it looks to me as though I'm a pound down on the whole deal. Oh, yes, you are. I am. Well, what is my incentive to give you the power? Well, the incentive is to make the orphans happy. Happy? <laughs> You're quite sure you've got this right. <laughs> yes, 
Yes, lots of people give me money. What, just like that? Yes, must be sick. <laughs> uh, I don't suppose you could give me a list of their names and addresses? <laughs> no, I'll just go up to them in the street and ask. Good Lord. That's the most exciting new idea I've heard in years. So, so the, the key phrase here is, what is my incentive? And at, in that literature at the time, everyone was talking about every behavior needs to have some sort of payoff, otherwise it wouldn't exist. And, and so everything needs, they were not thinking in averages, because that's what biologists generally do. We say, on average, and most of the time, and in the long run, a behavior needs to pay off. No, it all had to have an incentive. So it was very short-term type thinking. So this is my visualization of veneer theory, as I call it. So, so humans at the core are very bad. Around it are not good. <laughs> and then we have morality sitting around that. Well, you laugh about it, but this, is, this was the view in the 70s and 80s. This was the view, and I have been fighting against it for a long time because everyone thought this was a logical view. And it's basically the view of humans as psychopaths. Basically, all humans are basically psychopaths. That's how they looked at it. Now, Darwin himself didn't think like that at all. Darwin felt evolution had produced um, morality, that it was continuous with what animals do, and that it is based in the emotions. And so we're actually back at the moment to the Darwinian view of uh, morality. And, and this is a typical quote of, of Darwin who said, any animal, whatever, endowed with well-marked social instincts would inevitably acquire a moral sense or conscience as soon as that animal is, is as intelligent as we are. That's basically how he put it. So, so my agenda is basically a Darwinian one not uh, a Huxleyan or Darkinsonian one, uh, which I think re removed this very far from the original type of thinking. And uh, I'm going to give you some examples of, uh, of animal behavior that I think are, is continuous with moral morality. I'm not saying that a chimp or a bonobo is a moral being necessarily. I, I think there are differences. We can discuss those. Um, but, but I do think there's a lot of continuity. And I will start with reconciliation behavior which is very important because if you look at morality as a system that, that promotes cooperation within a society, then uh, resolving conflicts of interest between individuals is absolutely essential. Otherwise, you cannot set up a system like that. And I'll talk about, a bit about bonobos and about empathy and pro-social behavior, and I'll say a few things about fairness at the end. So conflict resolution is very common in the primates. Um, I discovered it as a student, um, and this is a picture actually that I took at that time of two male chimpanzees who ended up in a tree after a fight, and one of them holds out his hand to his partner and, and invites him for contact, and immediately after this picture they kissed and embraced each other, and that's the reconciliation. So if you define it as a friendly reunion between former opponents, it's a very common behavior that you can see in a chimp group all the time. Uh, here you have another example. This is a male who attacks a female. And uh, afterwards the female approaches and she offers her hand for a hand kiss to the male. And then they proceed to a mouse-to-mouse -mouse kiss, which is the actual reconciliation. And um, since the behavior is very human-like and the speed of interaction of chimps, we are slow primates and they are slow primates, you, we recognize it all very easily. Um, uh, that's maybe why it was discovered in chimpanzees, but now we know that lots of other species do the same thing. So the way we study it is do a PCMC method. We, we follow 
two, two animals after conflict for 10 minutes and see if they get together in a friendly way. And as you see, the PC graph is about 60%. So in this particular monkey species, 60% of the pairs of opponents come together in a friendly way after a fight. And if you do control observations where there has been no fight between them, uh, you end up at about 25%. And so what these data show is, is exactly the opposite of what I learned when I was a student. What I learned was that aggression drives individuals apart, but actually what we see is that aggression brings individuals together. It's, we call it post-conflict attraction. And that has to do with the need to reconcile in a cooperative society. It has now been found in wolves and dogs and hyenas and goats and dolphins and elephants. And basically, we have reached the point that, that if you have a social species that has regular conflicts and does not reconcile that we are very puzzled and we don't understand how that's possible. So, so it is an absolutely essential part of cooperative societies. There's even some birds now that have been found to reconcile. This is what children do. And so if you do the same observations in the schoolyard, you get the same sort of data. And this has been done all over the world with all sorts of cultures. There's very interesting cultural differences between the degree of reconciliation in a society, uh, which starts already in, uh, is visible in the children. So to, to get to morality, I, I consider morality has two pillars, uh, without which I don't think it can exist. Um, and one of them is empathy, the whole complex of empathy, compassion, sympathy, Caring for others, attachment belongs to that also. Um, and if you're not interested in others, why would you have a moral system? If, if you're sitting alone on an island, a moral system is absolutely of no use to you. And so uh, it, it has to do with sociality, and sociality has to do with caring about others. So that's one pillar. The other one has to do with cooperation. Reciprocity, I do something for you, you do something for me. That brings up the, the, the fairness question and the justice question. Are you doing enough for me compared to what I do for you and so on. And so that's the other side of the equation. And with, without those two, I cannot see us having moral systems. And so my argument is, and this, this is the same one that Darwin, Darwin made, is that um, morality is not some sort of invention by philosophers or religious leaders. It, it comes straight out of human nature, and these, these two components are part of that. So the empathy question is at the moment getting very popular, and um, this is a dictionary definition of empathy, uh, which says the ability to understand and share the feelings of another, and it has immediately the two components, which is the understanding part and the feeling part. So the cognitive and the emotional, as we usually call it. And, and so I see empathy as having two, two channels. One is the body channel. You synchronize your body with somebody else. Someone is, is telling you a sad story and has a sad expression. You will have a sad expression on your face. This, this facial mimicry, for example, has been tested in humans. It's involuntary. We cannot even suppress it if we wanted to. Uh, and so there's a lot of emotional contagion. And the emotional contagion starts very early in life. So babies cry when they hear other babies cry. Uh, and already on the first day of life, there's a sex difference. Girl babies do this more than boy babies. And so the sex differences in empathy that we see in society, in all human societies, basically, are visible in that body channel also. Then the other one is what I call the cognitive channel, is where you take the perspective of somebody else, and that requires that you have a better self-other distinction. That's maybe not present in a whole lot of animals because that requires that you set yourself apart and see that your situation is not their situation. And so that's more complex and, and requires uh, self-identity. 
We study the body synchronization by looking at yawn contagion, which is a manifestation of it. People yawn when they see other people yawn. Uh, and, and there are many animals that yawn, as you may know. Uh, so this is what we do. We show a chimpanzee an iPod on which she sees yawning chimpanzees. So this has been done with uh, several species now. It has been done with dogs, and you can try this at home uh, if you have an empathic dog. Dogs yawn when the owners yawn. And it is important that it's the owner because closeness is part of empathy. So in our study, we found that um, with the chimpanzees, on the left you see the graph of yawn contagion for in-group members, which are chimpanzees that they know. So they see videos of familiar chimps. And on the right, it's out-group members. So these are chimpanzees who are strangers to them. And they only show the yawn contagion for familiar individuals. Uh, this has been tested in humans. Uh, there are observations in Italy, in waiting rooms, and train stations. You, you stand next to, to a stranger who yawns, you're not going to be yawning. Uh, you stand next to uh, your spouse or your children who yawn, you're going to be yawning. And so this is a, a universal thing that we find in the empathy studies. There are now a dozen studies on rodents. Rodent People are even breeding mice on empathy at this moment, believe it or not. So um, also in the rodent studies is that uh, empathy is promoted by familiarity and similarity. And the flip side of that is, of course, we have trouble having empathy with individuals who are quite different from us. So, so this is sort of universal in all the mammalian em empathy studies. There's, there's a familiarity bias. Now, we look at bonobos, and, and bonobos I, I sometimes use as the example of the empathic ape because it's the real, really the most empathic of the apes, I think, uh, and um, more so than, uh, than the others. Some of them are, are quite solitary, such as the orangutans, and some of them are quite dominance-oriented. So bonobos are a very interesting species to look at because bonobos are exactly equally close to us as the chimpanzee. Uh, they're often ignored in all the stories that people tell about uh, primate behavior, um, but they are very uh, much like our human ancestors. If you look at their bodies, when they stand upright, their body proportions are the same, their feet are the same, their brain size is the same. Uh, the only difference is that our ancestors walked habitually, they walked all the time probably on two legs, and the bonobos do that only occasionally. But they're, they're very interesting from that perspective, and, and I'm not saying that they're closer to us than chimpanzees, they're equidistant to us, but they should be taken into account when people talk about human evolution. And, and they're usually sidelined because they're either, they're either because they're not aggressive enough, we like aggressive ancestors who kill everybody and, and, and conquer the world, uh, and, and they're female-dominated, which is not a good thing to have either. We want male-dominated ones, and so the bonobo doesn't fit with that. Bonobos resolve conflicts with sex, and they are very efficient at it because there's, until now there's not a confirmed report of one bonobo killing another. Uh, there are many such reports, unfortunately, for chimpanzees. I'll show you a little reconciliation. This happens in a river. So you see a fight between two bonobos, and you see a reconciliation immediately afterwards. So that's it. People always think bonobos have sex like for hours every day. Ten seconds is a long time for bonobos. And um, you, you should look at it differently. You should look at it more like a handshake or something. Uh, but it is sexual in nature. Now, 
getting closer to what you normally would call uh, empathy, consolation behavior. So that's a response to a distressed individual. And here you have a bonobo consolation. Um, this is actually the original way in which empathy was tested in humans. So Zahn Waxler, already 40 years ago, he, st he started instructing family members in human families to cry and to say, I'm in pain, and to cough, and then see how young children responded. And the young children would approach them, would touch them, try to calm them down, talk to them if they could talk. Uh, and she, she called that expressions of empathy. Um, and the girl babies did, the girl uh, children did already more than the, than, than the boys. And so she found the sex difference at that time. And she also discovered by accident, that was not her purpose, that the dogs in the home did the same thing. And, and she already concluded at that point, if we call this empathy in children, why are we not calling it empathy in dogs? And, and consolation is also the paradigm that we use most often. Of course, we, we don't induce distress. We wait till distress happens in a group of bonobos or chimps and, and see how others respond to them. So here you will see a consolation of a baby bonobo. The, the baby is on the right, is, is three or four years old, and uh, the female on the left bites it, and you will see what happens. Bandon, you just uh, attacked Malak. So that's the empathy response, at least in humans we call this empathic concern, uh, which is very developed in the apes. It's very easy to see in the apes because it happens the whole day. Um, but in monkeys it's actually extremely rare. We make a very, I don't know if you know that, but we make a very big distinction usually between apes and monkeys. Apes is what you are, basically. Um, uh, yeah, we, we are all tailless primates with large brains, and that's what the apes are. Uh, monkeys are quite different. And so the monkeys show very little of this behavior. We studied that in a sanctuary. It's sort of unfortunate that the sanctuary exists because there's so much poaching and hunting going on in Africa. And the, the poachers, they bring the meat of dead bonobos to the market, uh, but they try to sell the, the, the babies. They try to sell them live. And, and then they're often confiscated. They end up in the sanctuary. They're raised by humans. And so everything you see here in this forest are traumatized orphans. It's a very interesting group to compare with, with human orphans, because Romanian orphanages have been studied extensively for emotional expressions, and actually empathy is very reduced in, in the Romanian orphans. And we have an interesting comparison group. You see some babies on the backs of the females there. Uh, we, we have actually moderate bonobos in these groups that we can compare them with. And what we get is if you look at the consolation rate of individuals, we, we get that juveniles do twice as much as the adults in terms of consolation. So the adults become, I don't think the adults have different um, capacities or different responses, but they become more selective in to whom they direct uh, this kind of behavior. And the interesting thing for us is also that the moderate ones, that's the last graph here, do far more than anybody else. So we only have juveniles for that, but the moderate ones, they do uh, more than twice as much as the, the orphaned uh, juveniles. And that is consistent with their studies um, on, on human orphans. And, and we have other evidence that I'm not going to present that this is related to emotion regulation, is that uh, if you are raised by a mother as a bonobo, you are better at regulating your emotions, meaning down-regulating when someone is distressed Instead of being completely distressed yourself, you can downregulate it, and that allows you to, to offer consolation to them. And so this whole issue of emotion regulation, which is so big in human development, is also part of our studies of um, empathy responses.
Now let me say a few things about cooperation. Um, let me start with a very old movie, a hundred year old movie from the Yerkes Pyramid Center. These are two chimps who are pulling at a heavy box that they cannot pull in alone, it's too heavy, and so they have to work together. And they're very coordinated, as you see. And then they feed one of those two chimps. So one of them has now lost his, his appetite and lost his interest in the task. So now look what happens at the end. So one takes almost everything. So the chimp on the right, there's two interesting things about this. The chimp on the right has a full understanding that he needs the partner. And the chimp on the left is willing to work even though he's not interested in the incentives. Incentive, that was the important thing in the 70s and 80s. So why would you work without an incentive? No one... No one wants to try? Help? To help? Yeah. Reciprocity, is the, I think, is the key. Is that these two probably live together and they do favors to each other all the time. And, and that works out better than not doing these favors for each other. So we set up a cooperation test with chimpanzees. This is because in the literature, I don't know if you're following the anthropological and economics literature, where a sort of claim has taken hold in the last five years that humans are exceptionally cooperative. Humans are by far the most cooperative species. There's one, one economist who even said, our cooperation is a huge anomaly in the animal kingdom, uh, which I find a very strange statement given that all the good theories we have about cooperation come out of animal behavior. And... Uh, 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 there are so many animals who cooperate even between species or sometimes between single cells. Your whole body is a set of cooperating cells, basically. And in your body are lots of foreign elements that you don't even know about who are working for you. So th this whole idea that human cooperation is somehow special, and, and one of the claims in that literature is that uh, chimpanzees are too competitive and too selfish. They cannot overcome that. And, and, and so, so, yes, they cooperate on occasion, but they cannot really reduce competitive tendencies. And so we set up a, a cooperative tests in which competition was possible. So, yes, you have three chimps here who have to pull at an apparatus, but at the same time, everybody else is present. So, so there's about 20 other chimps who are present who can interfere with it, who can beat you up, steal your food. Uh, and um, that means that if cooperation survives in that environment, the chimps must be capable of handling competition. Otherwise, it would not survive. And, and you get competitions. Like here you have a female who tries to get rid of another female at the apparatus. She starts to drag at her and she starts to pull at her. So yes, there is competition, but you know, chimpanzees have teeth and they can bite and they can make injuries. And that's something that we almost never saw. So it's always this mild kind of stuff. 
uh, and they were very good at handling it. As a result, we had 3,000 cooperative acts among them, uh, which means that they were basically cooperating all the time. They were cooperating nonstop. The little competitions and the freeloading that they had, they were able to handle, and they punished sometimes freeloaders, uh, which is another thing they, they were not supposed to do because that's something that is uniquely human. And so we, we actually found that the chimps are far better at cooperating than anyone had predicted in this test. And so I want to show you a little video of this, this particular experiment, which we did in Lawrenceville here, which is the Yerkes Primate Center nearby. Uh, so here we have um, the apparatus. Here you have two chimps. They need to look at each other, otherwise they cannot do the task because they need to pull it exactly the same a fraction of a second. And here they get the food. Here you have three of them. It's, of course, more complex. They still need to look at each other to do it. We never trained them. We, we, we just put up the apparatus and they had to figure out how it worked. And so here they're pulling at it and getting the food. Here you see a typical little competition. The alpha female walks away from the apparatus. A young female moves in right away, starts to pull. As soon as she gets food out of it, the alpha female tries to come back and steal it from her. Um, here you have a, f a female who, who gets rid of a male who's sitting at the apparatus. She, she's not dominant over the male, but she, she has other ways of, of handling this. So this is what I mean by mild competition. They, they, they don't use their teeth. They have all these sort of, there's actually quite a bit of tolerance in this interaction by the male. Uh, and then we have these interesting things is that they, uh, here you have two females who arrive together. We don't know how they communicate this. They, they come from a distant building. They must be communicating that they're going to work together. Uh, we don't know how, how these rendezvous are uh, arranged between them. Um, but we see that quite often, and so there's communication going on about cooperative, in, uh, cooperative intentions, basically uh, uh, joint intentionality, which is another claim about humans. So, so, so in this single experiment, we, we have demonstrated that all these sort of stories about the specialness of um, human cooperation are uh, a bit overblown. Now, we've set up the same experiment with elephants. It's very hard to do these studies with elephants. Uh, for one thing, you cannot create a box that is too heavy for an elephant to pull in. Um, and so, because that needs to be as big as a truck or something like that. So, so we, we set up these experiments where the elephants have an apparatus with a rope around it, and they need to pull at, at the two ends of the rope, of the single rope, at exactly the same time. Otherwise, the rope is going to disappear. You see, we, we will see how this goes. And, and then we make it more difficult for them by retaining one of the elephants. So, so then to see if the other one understands that he needs the partner. In Thailand, Dr. Josh Plotnik and his team have devised a unique challenge to find out. Using a sliding table, some rope, and an irresistible reward. So here's the problem. The elephants need to be able to pull the table closer to gain access to the sunflower seeds. And they need the rope to do that. But if only one of them pulls the rope, then they both go hungry. Can they work together to solve a novel problem? From cap. And more importantly, do they actually understand the concept behind it? 
the first time the elephants are shown this task, they fail. But this is a necessary part of the learning process. And something is definitely going on in there. A four kilogram brain is working it out. The first thing I think that they learn, and there has to be some learning involved, and this is a task they've never experienced before. Um, the first thing is that they've learned that their partner needs to be there. And I think in some ways they've learned not only does their partner need to be there, but their partner needs to be doing something. It doesn't take them long to figure it out. But Josh needs to prove that their brain power allows them to understand what's going on. So he releases one elephant before the other in the hope it'll wait for its partner. This moment of waiting is key. Josh gets the answer he was looking for. What you're seeing is that the elephants are thinking about cooperation. Um, and that actually demonstrates how smart and how well adapted these animals are. It's all very well proving that animals understand cooperation. But how does it help them to survive in the wild? So this experiment has been done with actually many species and there's a, chimps can do it and elephants can do it but many species fail and I think it is because they have been rewarded many times for pulling at something and they cannot suppress the response. Uh, and uh, so it requires emotional control, another very, very big issue in, in human morality and I think chimps and uh, elephants are better at that than most other species. So we, we started testing whether chimps care about the well-being of others after a number of tests uh, had concluded that they don't, um, but they used an apparatus which I'm not 100% sure that the chimps understood. And so we, we, we decided to do pro-social testing on chimps without an apparatus. Uh, this is actually uh, on the top, the top window that you see is my office window that overlooks the chimpanzees. And so this is one of the two compounds that we have at the Yerkish Field Station where the chimpanzees live. They live outdoors and we call them into a room to do the test. And so then they come into the room and then we set up a test, in this case the pro-social test, which I did with Vicky Horner, and you will see how that goes. They, they get tokens, they know that they can exchange tokens for food. They don't know what the two colors do. They get 30 of them in a, in a bucket. And so they know they can get food for it and there's a partner sitting next to them, there's a little table, I'll explain how this goes, the test. Uh, and so here you see a chimp making a choice. She, she picks one token and gives it to us. We put it, this is, this is a selfie token, we put it on the table so that they can see it. We, we only feed the one on the right and make the choice. The partner on the left, the partner is going to express her opinion about the choice. She has an opinion.
So the partner is completely in on this whole game and knows everything, and now the, 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 the other one makes a pro-social choice. And, and so that's a green token that we put also on the table to remind them of their choice, and then we feed both of them at the same time. And that's the whole difference between the two tokens. We put tokens back into the box, as you see. Uh, we, we make sure that the same numbers stay in there. And that's the whole experiment. We do this 30 times in a row. And of course, by the end of testing, uh, the chimps know what the two tokens mean. And they know that... So, so the one who makes the choices, for that chimp, it doesn't make any difference. That chimp gets rewarded each single time for each single token. So that chimp shouldn't actually care about what kind of token is being, being used. The only difference is, does my partner get something, yes or no? And this is what they do. They, they pick the pro-social token. If the partner draws attention, that's the second column. If the partner draws attention to herself by climbing around and vocalizing and being visible at least, the choices go up. If the partner puts pressure on them by banging on the window and yelling at them and spitting water, the choices go down. They, they do less pro-social behavior to those. And this is what they do when there's no partner. And so we were the first to demonstrate that, yes, chimpanzees do care about the well-being of others. There are now five or six of these studies. There's a very nice study done on bonobos where you give a bonobo a whole pile of fruit. He can eat all the fruit by himself, but he has also learned that there's a door that he can open. He has learned how to open the door, and behind the door sits another bonobo. And what the bonobos mostly do is they, they look at the fruit, they go to the door, they open it, they let the other one in, and they share the food with the other one. And so there's now five or six of these studies, and, and the whole idea that animals don't care about the well-being of others, there's, there's many other tests on many other species now, really doesn't exist anymore. The last thing I want to mention uh, is a study I did with Sarah Brosnan. Sarah is going to say a few more things uh, about inequity later. I'm going to show you just the original experiment, uh, not much more than that. There's now many studies, there are studies on dogs and crows and, of course, children. Um, but we started with capuchin monkeys. And, and so we discovered by accident that capuchins care about what somebody else is getting relative to what they are getting. They shouldn't. If you look at the literature of rats learning how to press a lever and all that kind of stuff, it's all about reward schedules and how much effort and how much reward and how the quality of the rewards. It's never about what is the other rat getting, but there was, the monkeys were paying attention to that. And so as a result, we set up an experiment where we, you put two monkeys, capuchin monkeys, side by side, and they, they can both get, for a simple task, they can both get cucumber, which is fine. They can both get grapes, which is also fine. Or one of them gets grape and the other one gets cucumber, and, and grape is, is about 10 times better than cucumber. And so they make a distinction between the two. Uh, this is data from that study. So if both of them get cucumber, they refuse only 5% of the time, meaning 95% of the time they are doing the task. They have no trouble with the task. If the partner gets grape, so now you still get cucumber, but now your partner is getting grapes, they start to refuse 50% of the time. They don't want to do the task anymore. They lose interest in the task, even though the cucumber uh, stays as fresh and good and nice uh, as it used to be, but the other one is getting grapes. So now the partner is getting, the, the last one, the partner is getting grapes for free. The partner is not even working for the grapes anymore. Now they refuse 80% of the time. So we, we found 
uh, that uh, the Capuchins were uh, sensitive to inequity. And I'm going to show you a little video that has become very famous, uh, partly because the presidential debates at the moment are about income inequality. And so that's what we create between the monkeys. And so the monkey on the left is working for cucumber, the one on the right is working for grapes. The task is very simple, they need to give us a rock. And now he gets cucumber. Look at the first piece, it's still good. The first piece is eaten and is fine. Now the partner needs to give us a rock and gets a grape. He sees that. He gives us again a rock. Gets cucumber again. Again, needs to give us a rock. Again, gets cucumber. Now, when we first published this, we, we never used the word fairness, I believe, in our paper. Um, but the media, of course, immediately talked about the sense of fairness of monkeys. And uh, we got uh, angry responses. There was one angry philosopher who said it's impossible that monkeys have a sense of fairness because fairness was invented during the French Revolution. <laughs> so, so now I, I use this as an illustration of top-down thinking because it's really the thinking there that a, a bunch of old guys in, sitting in Paris have decided that this is a good principle in society and we're going to follow it. But that's not how our moral tendencies come about. I usually used to calm them down by saying, well, it's a very egocentric sense of fairness because the monkey who gets the grape doesn't care about the whole situation. Um, but um, Sarah will explain that for chimpanzees it doesn't work that same way. So for monkeys that is true. The monkeys have a very egocentric sense of fairness, um, very similar to children, and that's why I want to show you a little video. There are all, there are all these mothers who repeat my monkey experiments on their kids. Um, <laughs> And they don't need to go through the IRB committees like I would. And so they do things that I cannot do. This is a mother who gives her, her boy a whole cookie and her daughter um, a half cookie. You will see how that goes. Cookie. You want cookie? Daniel, here's one cookie. Ma. Anna, this one's for you. Really? So, so it's very, a very nice illustration of similarity in responses between uh, hum, human children and monkeys. And um, th this, this is part, I think, of the sense of fairness, uh, sort of the beginnings in the animal kingdom. And I think many animals show this particular sort of sense of fairness that they, they get upset about getting less than somebody else. Uh, but as Sarah will explain, the, the chimps go further than that, just like humans. And so my conclusion is that Darwin was right. I haven't said much about human morality, but you know the studies of Haidt and others uh, and, and Joshua Green and so on on human morality. I'm not going to talk about that. But human morality activates very old parts of the brain, very different from what you would think if it's all prefrontal cortex. Uh, and uh, in primates, we find reciprocity and fairness. We find empathy and consolation, pro-social tendencies. And so basically, all the elements that we 
incorporate in our moral systems are there. It's, I'm not sure they put it together, the primates, in the same way as we do. That's for sure. They're not, they're not to, into justifying moral rules and that kind of things. But many of the psychological tendencies that are present in our moral systems are present in other primates. And I want to thank all the people who work with me and do these experiments, and I want to thank you for your attention. And I'd like to thank you for a fascinating talk. Uh, for the next part, we're going to have, we have a fantastic lineup of four respondents who are all going to bring their own expertise on morality from very different disciplines and perspectives, including philosophy, religious studies, biology, and psychology. In reverse chronological order, we have Azim Sarif, Ted Slingeland, Sarah Brosnan, and Robert McCauley. Our first respondent is Bob McCauley. Professor McCauley, Bob, is the William Rand Keenan Jr. Professor uh, and Director of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture at Emory here in Atlanta. He's a philosopher of science who is particularly interested in cognitive and brain sciences, education, and religion. He's widely recognized as one of the founders of the cognitive science of religion and has served as the president of the International Association for the Cognitive Science of Religion. His later of several books is called Why Religion is Natural and Science is Not. I um, find the AAR printed program unfathomable. And so, candidly, I have not seen the, the listing for this session. But if it is listed as uh, DeWall and his critics, I think that's going to be misleading. Uh, we are uh, commentators. I actually haven't spoken to my colleagues in any detail at all about what they're intending to say. But uh, quite frankly, I, I have no serious disagreements with what Franz has to say. So I'm going to do something a little different. Um, but let me say something about Franz's position first. Um, uh, it seems to me he has two conclusions broadly that he's arguing. Sorry, I already got both of them up there. Okay, two that he's arguing for. Uh, his so-called bottom-up approach to morality. Um, and that's certainly a descriptive claim, uh, but one that seems to me to carry a certain amount of normative force, uh, as explicated, for example, in the work of um, even some philosophers, uh, like I think John Rawls, um, normative theories, in effect, must have some descriptive adequacy. Uh, they must square with our, um, at least the bulk of our moral intuitions. Uh, so, as you can see here, uh, Franz says, uh, the whole point of my book is to argue a bottom-up approach with visceral reactions arriving before rationalizations. Uh, the second conclusion that he argues for um, is that morality predates religion. Um, Modern religions, he says, latched on to it. Uh, now, there are plenty of complexes that we could call religion uh, in small-scale societies um, that are not obviously connected to too much of what we call uh, normative morality in large-scale societies. But um, uh, in any event, uh, the sort of things that we're most readily willing to sort of attach that term to, namely religion, um, Franz argues are sort of, I believe at one point in the book, says Johnny-come-latelys. Um, his principal premise in support of both of these conclusions uh, is his claim, or this is a version of it at least, uh, we started out with moral sentiments and intuitions, which is where we find the greatest continuity with other primates. Um, 
And, uh, of course, you know, speaking of comparative levels of continuity with primates suggests that uh, there could be differences with regard to the features in question, and that seems to me to be, to me to be perfectly reasonable. Okay. Um, Franz employs observational and experimental evidence from comparative psychology about other primates to defend his claims for the primacy of our moral sentiments, for their natural foundations, and for their phylogenetic continuities. Uh, he notes evidence from related fields about how adult human beings, in fact, operate morally in order to defend the primacy of moral sentiments, the first feature of that. Um, studies from uh, fields such as social psychology, cultural psychology, experimental anthropology, and behavioral economics support his claims about the pivotal role of our non-reflective moral sentiments. Now, I really, as I've said, have no disagreements with Franz about on these matters. Uh, and given what I know about the other panelists' areas of expertise, uh, what I'm going to do is review briefly some further evidence for the naturalness of our moral dispositions, uh, which at least, it seems to me, points in the direction of their phylogenetic continuities uh, that Franz stresses. Uh, his claim that uh, we, quote, started out with moral sentiments and intuitions, end quote, I think is doubly true. Um, this is true about the ontogeny of the human mind, um, and it's consonant with the parallel phylogenetic claim. Uh, so uh, valuable evidence uh, for the former case about the ontogeny arises from research in developmental psychology. Uh, and I'll briefly summarize some prominent studies over the last few years, the findings from which seem to me to support or offer support from a different quarter <coughs> for DeWall's positions. So the first uh, paper I want to say something about real quickly is a paper by um, Stephanie Sloan, Rene Barjon, and David Premack. Um, they use what is known, uh, I should, uh, I, I realize you may be processing that image right now, and that's okay, I can, uh, you can take a look at it. I'll talk about it in a second, but um, it's a remarkable thing that's occurred in the last four or five decades, and that is we have outstanding experimenters learning about the cognition of primates um, and, of course, my colleague Franz is uh, a leader amongst that group. Um, but it's also a remarkable thing that's occurred in the last 40 years in developmental psychology because uh, developmental psychologists have come up with methods for ascertaining what nonverbal infants probably think uh, without them being able to tell us what they think. And um, one of those sorts of experiments is a so-called violation of expectation paradigm. Um, and the question is, you give infants stimuli, and do they differentially look a lot longer at one or another of the stimuli? Uh, sometimes that's done in parallel, sometimes it's done between subjects serially, sometimes within subjects serially, and so on. Um, okay, uh, experiment one here uh, is examining 19-month-olds' responses and it's within subjects, to equal and unequal distributions of resources to two animated giraffes to ascertain if they could receive, or sorry, they would receive different looking times. That is to say, uh, if you give them unequal versus equal. Uh, and it included two control conditions. Um, the first uh, is uh, the inanimate control, which is to say that the giraffes now are no longer animated. They're not sort of bouncing around, right, or moving or seeming to react to the uh, 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 bestowal of the resources. 
And then um, secondly is a cover control. Um, what's going on in the cover control is, is that you aren't giving them the resources. It's simply that you lift covers off of and reveal either equal or unequal distributions of the resources to the giraffes. Okay? And what kind of results do we get? Um, the results of experiment one support three conclusions. First, uh, at 19 months, toddlers expect resources to be divided equally between two otherwise similar individuals. And if they don't get equal amounts, the babies, in short, sig look significantly longer at that outcome than they do when they do get equal, out, um, equal resources. Second, uh, it's unlikely that this expectation turns on any low-level factors about the stimuli, since the expectation does not appear to be in play when the giraffes are not animated which is to say you don't get a significant difference then in looking. It's only when the giraffes seem like they're little lively little giraffes uh, as opposed to just a couple of toys sitting there uh, statically. And then third, it's not that these toddlers simply expect similar individuals to have similar numbers of items since, remember, it's about removing the covers. You don't give them anything. You're just removing covers over resources that are right in front of them. Um, since removing uh, the covers that reveal unequal distributions as opposed to an agent imposing unequal distributions does not occasion the same effect. That is, there is no difference in the time that the toddlers look at the unequal versus equal arrangements when they're simply uncovered. Okay. Um, experiment two in this study um, looks at the allocation of rewards for effort. All three conditions involve an experimenter requesting that two individuals put away the toys with which they're playing. You can see them sort of on the sides of each panel there. Uh, and then the person who's sort of running the experiment is the person in the center in the back. Okay? Um, each condition has two variants, one in which only one individual puts away the toys and one in which both of the individuals put away the toys. Now, because of the length of the scenarios, uh, de developmentalists know about roughly what ages you can sort of keep kids still to watch such displays. Um, this is with 21-month-olds rather than 19-month-olds. Now, in the first explicit condition, the experimenter promises, and if you can, I don't know, I realize it's probably, the print is probably too small, but you've got the experimenter there with the little bubbles, like cartoon bubbles above them, and in one of them they're promising to give them uh, a sticker if they help put away the toys by the time that she returns. She's clearly able to see who has and who has not helped because lids on the boxes where the toys are stowed are transparent. But crucially, in either condition, that is to say whether one uh, does the helping or both do the helping, when the experimenter returns, she gives stickers to both of them. Okay, that's the crucial variable here. Um, the second implicit condition, and what I did is I just pressed this thing. I want to just, just look up there. What I'm doing is erasing the promise. Okay, this is the explicit condition, the first one where she promises. This is the second condition where she doesn't promise. She just says, I want you to pick up the toys. Okay, 
Um, it's identical except that the experimenter does not promise the individuals a sticker. Um, though, in fact, at the end, she does, just like the other condition, give them both a sticker. Okay? And the third control condition, this is the best I could do to sort of uh, portray this, um, is identical to the explicit condition, except that the lids of the boxes where the individuals put away the toys are no longer transparent, which means when the, the experimenter comes back, the experimenter has no direct evidence about who helped put, up, put away the toys, because you can't see through the box, right, the way you could in the other conditions. Um, yeah, thus the experimenter is unable to see who has and who has not expended the effort. All right, so again, results of this experiment uh, support, again, three conclusions. First, uh, the findings in the explicit condition. I'll give you a sticker if you help put away the toys. Either one or both puts them away. You give them both stickers in either case. Okay, well, if you only one person helps, but you give stickers to both, that gets a significantly longer look from these kids, okay? Um, secondly, the implicit condition. We've taken away the promise, but the findings in the implicit condition, which also ge generate a significant difference with the 21-month-olds, um, suggest that this expectation that they have does not turn on the explicit declaration of the promise. And then thirdly, the findings in the control condition in which the boxes are not transparent suggests that the expectation does appear to turn on whether or not the experimenter can be understood to have knowledge of the two individuals' relative efforts. Okay, um, what I'm going to now do even quicker uh, is to just talk quickly about three other studies. I haven't got any f pictures to provide you or anything, just tell you what they are. Uh, these all come from uh, Karen Wynn and Paul Bloom's labs at Yale, um, uh, to which actually Franz briefly alludes at one point in the book. Um, now, in their 2007 paper, actually, I do have a few more pictures, uh, they found that even younger children show preferences for prosociality. This is crucial. Now, note, we're moving younger in age. Uh, since presumably the earlier in infancy such dispositions are manifest, the less plausibly they can be attributed to cultural influences. Okay, uh, here we've got a, a couple of um, uh, items they're trying to, you know, they're either animate or not, but I'll just read ahead. Okay, in a set of studies in which all the little characters portrayed in these vignettes are counterbalanced across subjects, six and ten-month-old infants, after becoming habituated to the helper and hinderer stimuli, uh, the little red guy is trying to get up the hill, and in the top panel, the blue guy is a hinderer. He keeps him from getting up in the, uh, the hill. And in the left top panel, the uh, yellow triangle is helping him. He's a helper. He's getting him up the hill, okay? Um, all right, let me read this again. Uh, in the set of studies in which all of the little characters portrayed in these vignettes are counterbalanced across the subjects, um, six to ten-month-old infants, after becoming habituated to the helper and hinder stimuli, that means they've looked at it so many times now that they, they get who the helper is, they get who the hinder is, and they're not interested in even looking anymore. Um, they prefer, in a subsequent choosing task, they've seen these, they've got them, they understand, and then later on you give them, you sort of literally hold out for them the triangle or the, the, the helper triangle or the hinderer cube in this example. Of course, they're counterbalanced. They prefer the helpers, okay, 
who um, pushed the climber up the slope over the neutrals, and the neutrals are down here in the bottom panel. The neutrals, these guys are moving up and down, but there isn't anybody being helped or hindered. They're just there, okay? Um, and they prefer both the helpers and the neutrals over the hinderer. Evidence that this is a preference for prosociality is that the infants show no preferences between the characters in the inanimate control condition. That is to say, down here in the bottom, if that's what they're seeing, they don't show any preferences for these characters. Okay, in a subsequent paper, um, using the same stimuli that I've just shown you, um, they found first, now listen to the age, three-month-olds looked preferentially to the helper over the hinderer when presented with both after habituating to the social stimuli in the top two panels, um, yet they were indifferent between the agents when habituated instead to the inanimate control condition in the middle panels. The authors found that the preference is rooted in the three-month-old infant's aversion to antisocial characters, that is to say, the hinderers, since in a second experiment, they gazed longer at neutral characters over hinderers, which is to say they distinguished them, but they didn't distinguish the neutrals from the helpers. Okay. Finally, there's a third paper. Uh, um, employing a different design, um, these researchers discovered that five-month-old infants uniformly prefer agents who act positively toward others, whereas eight-month-old infants selectively prefer characters who act positively toward prosocial individuals, but characters who act negatively toward antisocial individuals. Now, in fact, these papers, I think, are representative of a steadily increasing body of research in developmental psychology providing evidence of a very different sort from that on which Duvall focuses for his claims uh, concerning his conclusions, the fundamentality uh, of humans' moral sentiments and dispositions, and concerning their natural foundations. Moreover, the findings in these studies, give, given the ages of the participants, suggest that these dispositions do not depend much, if at all, upon cultural input, and can be said to at least point in the direction of Duvall's arguments for these sentiments' phylogenetic continuities. Thank you. Our next respondent is Dr. Sarah Brosnan, who is an associate professor of psychology, philosophy, and neuroscience at Georgia State University. Her research focuses on cooperation, reciprocity, inequity, and decision-making in non-human primates. She has conducted seminal research on the topic and is a very prolific author of scientific articles. She has won a number of awards and distinctions, including a National Science Foundation Career Award, and I'm very happy to present her to you as the next speaker. Excellent. So I uh, second Bob in that I am more of an um, add-on to Franz's talk than a commentator in the sense that I was Franz's graduate student and have done a lot of work with him. But one of the things that I've really been focused on, as he mentioned in the last few years, is understanding the origins of the sense of fairness. And the sense of fairness is really difficult to study because, of course, it's a social ideal. And you can't study social ideals in organisms that you can't go up and ask questions to. I can't go ask a chimpanzee or a bonobo how they feel about something that happened to them. So in order to do that, we have to rely on their behavioral response 
responses to the tasks that we put in front of them or the behavioral responses that we see in the wild. And really, you do need both. You need to be able to both look at what organisms are doing in their natural context, but you also need to do the experiments where you can control different things so you can understand, hopefully, more about the arrow of causality rather than just looking at correlations. So, um, I study mostly chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys, although I've looked at a lot of other species. And as Franz mentioned, of course, this is a video, an illustration from a video still of the video you saw, um, capuchin monkeys care very deeply if other individuals get a better reward than they do. And since the time of that study, I've actually replicated this with nine different species of primates, including humans. And what we find, interestingly, is that this is not a homology in the primates. A homology means something that is, is, exists in multiple organisms within a phylogenetic group because a common ancestor had it. So for instance, birds all have wings and flight because of a homology. The common ancestor to modern birds um, developed wings. What we see instead is that species that routinely cooperate with non-kin have this sense of inequity. They have this, um, they get upset when they get less than a social partner and other primate species don't. And that actually matches the data we've got outside the primates. You see this reaction in dogs, you see this reaction in highly social cooperative corvids, um, and unfortunately we don't have the negative evidence yet. Nobody's tested the non-cooperative species outside the primates, but I predict that that would be the same. But if this is the case, then what I'm really interested in is how this reaction manifests in an actual cooperative task. And we're starting to get some evidence along those lines as well. Um, so this is a study that was actually done quite some time back by Franz Duval and one of his students, Jason Davis. And there are numerous different conditions in the study. I'm going to focus on two of them. The two monkeys had a bar pole, like the one you saw in Franz's talk that the chimpanzees were pulling in. They had to work together to pull in the tray. But the food rewards, sorry, I use pointers, so I'm going to point over here. The food rewards were either dispersed on the tray, and actually this should say standard. I was changing the slide last night and made a mistake. But they were either dispersed on the tray such that when one monkey pulled in the tray, they could just reach out and grab the food rewards. Or the same number of rewards were clumped again into bowls, so they were still technically separated, in the middle of the tray. So that after the monkeys pulled in the tray, the tray clicked, and then they had to move to the center in order to get their food rewards. So obviously in this case, the food rewards are monopolizable. Oh, I just died anyway. Um, in the center case, the food rewards are monopolizable, but at the end, they can just grab, they can just grab their rewards. And what you see is that the monkeys cooperate to a great extent, 90% of the time, when the food rewards are dispersed so that the different individuals can easily grab their own rewards, but they very rarely cooperate when the food rewards are clumped in the middle. And interestingly, this is true for both kin, so mother-offspring pairs, and non-kin. So just being related isn't enough to overcome this focus on the monopolizable rewards. What's also interesting is that you see this from the very first trial. So this is not something that they're learning over the course of the test. Now, obviously, they're bringing in all the information they have from previous interactions. They were testing monkeys from an existing social group. These guys interact every day, all day. But they were able to extrapolate their knowledge of how interactions went in their typical social group to this experimental test and recognize, you know what, there's a good chance I'm not going to get these rewards. So, on the one hand, this seems to indicate very clearly that it's a lot easier to cooperate when somebody's already made things fair for you. But I'm also interested in those 30% of trials in which they managed to cooperate even though the food rewards were clumped. 
So what happens if we set up a situation where the food rewards are different, but they're still distinct? So they don't have to worry about dividing up the rewards after the fact. They know what they're getting ahead of time. So Franz and I, um, when I was a graduate student, set up some uh, study to look at this. We used the same group of capuchin monkeys, same bar pole, um, and we had the food rewards placed at the ends of the tray so that we knew that they couldn't steal each other's food rewards. And what we were particularly interested in was whether or not they would cooperate as well when rewards differed as when they were the same. So we used three different um, conditions. They're, either they both got two slices of apple, they both got a grape, or one cup was baited with two slices of apple and one cup was baited with a grape. And in case you're wondering why no cucumbers, it turns out that cucumbers are not sufficiently valuable for them to be willing to pull in a tray repeatedly, so we had to use two apple slices. But we pre-test the food rewards beforehand, so we didn't test any individual who didn't show a strong preference 80% of the time on multiple days for one grape over the same quantity of apples. So we know they all preferred the grape. And our prediction, of course, was, oh, and I also forgot to mention, we didn't separate these monkeys out. So they got to determine who pulled on which bar pull. So they determined ahead of time what the rewards would be. Um, and so our prediction, of course, was that they would do very, very well on the um, conditions in which the food rewards were equal, because there's nothing to negotiate. You both get apple, you both get grape, the foods are dispersed such that one individual can't steal the rewards, everything should be great. And we predicted that they would have difficulty when there was an apple and a grape, because they have to negotiate before the pull who's going to be getting the apple and who's going to be getting the grape. So just looking at these data, apple, grape, 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 apple, apple, um, that's what the uh, x-axis indicates. If you look at just whether or not they approached the bar pull or whether or not they attempted to pull on the bar pull, you see that for both related and unrelated individuals across all conditions, everybody was paying attention and at least somebody was willing to pull. And this is important because it shows that the results we got aren't due to just a disinterest in the task or them getting bored or walking away. But when you look at success rates, you get a very different story. First of all, related individuals, not surprisingly, are twice as likely to succeed at the task as unrelated individuals. But we don't have our predicted difference across the conditions. They're pulling at the same rate in all three of these conditions. So we went back and looked at the data a different way because one of the things we had noticed was that some pairs succeeded at very high rates and some pairs succeeded at much lower rates. And and this could also, we could break it down into what we called equitable pairs and inequitable pairs. So equitable pairs were pairs where in the apple grape condition, so that's the only condition we're talking about right now, the dominant took the side with the grape and therefore got the grape about half the time. I think it was 54% of the time. And the rest of the time, the subordinate got it. In our inequitable pairs, the dominant individual virtually always took the grape. So about 85% of the time, they were on the side with the grape. And in fact, this was a bimodal distribution. We didn't pick an artificial cut point. Everybody very cleanly fell into either equitable pairs or inequitable pairs. And if you look at cooperation across that distinction, what you see is that the equitable pairs are cooperating almost 80% of the time in all three of the conditions, whereas the inequitable pairs are not cooperating much at all, about 30% of the time across the board. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons. First, it seems like what's not important to these guys is the actual distribution, but their partner's behavior with respect to the distribution. So they're paying attention to their partner. 
And the second thing is, this doesn't seem to be a reaction to a, a specific trial, but it seems to be a reaction to the partner's behavior in general. As I said, there's never any stealing in this dispersed condition. So if you were a truly pragmatic, completely rational capuchin monkey, you should always pull in the apple, apple, and grape, grape condition because you're going to get an apple or a grape, and it's going to be the same as your partner. And you should only decline to pull in the unequal condition. But that's not what we see. They're declining to pull across the board. But remember, it's not that they aren't coming up and paying attention to the rewards. They see what's there. They're just declining to pull in general. And I think this is important because it's very rare that cooperation is completely equal on every single trial. It varies. Today I may get more of the monkey after our hunt. Tomorrow you may get more. What matters is the general tempo of the relationship. But of course, all of this shows is that they're paying attention to outcomes and paying attention to partners, but it doesn't necessarily show that critical second side of fairness that Franz mentioned at the end of his talk, which is how individuals respond when they're the ones who are advantaged. So if I want to maintain my relationship with you and I keep getting more, do I do anything to keep you from getting upset? So one way to test this um, one way to test this is to use the uh, inequity paradigm that Franz talked about, where we had two monkeys sitting next to one another, and they t one trades and get one gets one food, and one trades and gets the other. And we added another condition, which we call the high-value equity condition, in which case they both got grapes. And what we can compare is how the partner responds to their grape when the other individual, previously the subject, also got a grape as compared to when they got a cucumber. In other words, do I notice if you get less than I do and do I respond differently? Um, to give away the capuchins, they don't care. Um, but if we look at chimpanzees, we see that they do care. So males but not females, and I can, we can talk about that later if anybody's interested in the sex difference, but males do respond more often by refusing a grape when their partner got a cucumber as compared to the condition where they both got a grape. So we see evidence that indeed chimpanzees do notice when their partner gets less than they do. We don't know the underlying mechanism from this study, but it validates that they are paying attention. Another interesting thing is that if you compare this response to positive inequity, I notice when I get more, to how the same chimpanzees responded when they got less than a partner, there's a big difference. They're much more upset when they get less than when they get more. And I have had numerous discussions with people, particularly in economics and psychology, saying, well, that doesn't look like humans because humans, are, humans have a sense of fairness that it's equivalent. We care whether we get more, we care whether we get less. And while that may be true, a paper that came out on Wednesday indicates that that may not be the whole story. Um, so um, Peter Blake and Katie McAuliffe and their colleagues published a paper where they looked at inequity responses in seven societies. Um, and you probably can't tell what those are, but it's really irrelevant. They ranged from uh, Canada, India, Mexico, Peru, Senegal, Uganda, and USA. So a variety of different societies. And what you see on your left-hand panel is how, whether or not they refused when the rewards were equal. And on the right-hand panel is whether or not these kids refused when their rewards were unequal, where they were disadvantaged. The age starts at 4 and goes up to 15. And what you can see is the kids don't really refuse at all when their rewards are equal. They do refuse when they're disadvantaged. But there's a real increase across the lifespan. I mean, this is going from age 4, which is well above the ages that... Um, Bob was talking about up to age 15. 
But what's critical is they also tested the same kids for advantageous inequity, and both the X and the Y axis are on the same scale in this, but you can see that it's a very different pattern. Four out of the seven societies, by the age of 12 to 15, the kids were not showing a response to advantageous inequity at all. And even on the three societies that did, which were Canada, U.S., and Uganda, um, it was a, it, the reaction started slower and it never got as high as the reaction to disadvantageous. So it seems both developmentally and phylogenetically there is a predisposition to care when we're disadvantaged, which of course makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. Evolution is relative, I care a lot when I get less than you, and I may care when I get more of you, but it's not quite as visceral of a reaction. So we wanted to test this a bit further by looking at the ultimatum game, which is sort of the quintessence of how you test advantageous inequity aversion in humans. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's a simple game where one individual, the proposer, is given a, uh, a, a, a bolus of money, maybe $10. They get to split it between themselves and a partner. If the partner accepts, everybody gets the money the way the proposer um, proposed. If the partner rejects, nobody gets anything. And in human societies across the board, typically the modal offer is about 50%. There's some cultural variation in there. Well, we can't do that with chimpanzees, obviously, because you can't explain the game to chimpanzees. But what we did um, with one of my former graduate students, Darby Proctor, was to do a limited form ultimatum game. So in this case, the chimpanzees got to choose between a token that was worth a 3-3 split of the rewards with six pieces of banana, or a token that was worth a 5-1 split of the rewards. They had to take the token, pass it to a partner, who could then pass it out to us. Just, just to give you a visual of what it looked like, the two chimps were next to one another. And we had first a preference condition to see which token they preferred. So the chimpanzee proposer was given the two tokens. They actually were given them in a bucket, just like Franz demonstrated earlier. They could choose one when they passed it back out. The humans changed the distribution, pushed the food rewards forward, and the proposer got five and the responder got one. In the ultimatum game condition, there was one difference, which was when the proposer chose their reward, they had to pass it to the responder, who was passive in the preference condition, but now had to make an active choice whether or not to pass that token back out to the experimenter. If they chose not to, nobody got anything. If they did, then the experimenter split the rewards accordingly and gave them to the chimpanzees. An important difference with human ultimatum games is that we're testing subjects from the same social group, and we're also not in an anonymous situation. They know who they're interacting with. Typically, economic games in humans, whether they're done in our, our societies or in um, different societies around the globe, they try to make it anonymous. So even if it's within the same group that you live, they try to make it anonymous so you don't know who you're interacting with. So in order to validate what humans would do in this case, we replicated it with kids, um, four-year-olds, and we used kids from the same daycare class who were sitting next to one another and knew exactly who they were interacting with because we were interested in how humans would respond when they too had this option. So looking at the chimp data, not surprisingly, the chimps had a very strong preference for the 5-1 distribution in the um, preference task, but there were only 12 ultimatum game trials, so it was a very small number of trials, and yet they showed a strong flip in preferences. They now preferred the 3-3 token. The really interesting thing is that they did this without the responder ever refusing anything. Responders would react. Um, we got water spitting and banging and chimpanzees, some screaming, and kids. We got, hey, why'd you choose that one? That's not fair. Choose the other token. Um, but we didn't get any refusals in either the kids or the chimpanzees. 
And so we don't, while we didn't have refusals, we did have communication by these responders, and we think that's important. It's a subtle form of punishment. It's saying, hey, I took it this time, but I'm really not happy about it. And in fact, that's probably smart when you're interacting with known individuals in a social group. You don't want to just refuse and stop the interaction because then nobody's going to gain anything. What you want to do is change your partner's behavior so that in the future you do better. So to go over again something Franz mentioned at the end of his talk, the evolution of fairness really involves two components. First is this first order inequity aversion or first order fairness. So this is, oh look, I got less than you, you got more, I get upset, you don't react. And that's probably widespread across the animal kingdom, certainly among mammals, probably vertebrates and possibly beyond. Um, we certainly have seen evidence of this now in dogs, corvids, some of the primates as I mentioned. And it's got obvious evolutionary implications. If you're getting less than someone else that tells you something about the, the value of this relationship. And if you continually get yet less, maybe it's time to go on and find somebody else to interact with. But the second aspect of fairness is how you respond when you get more. So in second order inequity aversion, it's set up the same way. I got less than you, I start to protest. But individual A can forestall individual B's um, protest by equalizing the outcomes. And note, they don't have to give the whole thing or even necessarily half. It just has to be enough to show good faith towards maintaining the equity of the relationship. And if that's done properly, individual B's protest goes away and you can maintain the cooperative interaction. So this too has an evolutionary foundation. Maintain, you pay a short-term cost now to maintain that long-term relationship which will give you long-term benefits. We don't see this second order inequity outside of the humans to much of a degree, except in the chimpanzees. I suspect we may find it in dolphins or elephants or other very encephalized, highly social species as well. Nobody's looked yet. But in humans, it's easy to see how this foundation with our very large prefrontal cortices became the sense of fairness we see today. We have extended abilities at planning. We can delay gratification. We have theory of mind, so I can understand that Bob thinks that I'm being a jerk. And so taken together, we can put these into a framework that became the sense of fairness that we see today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next panelist is Ted Slingerland, who is a professor of Asian Studies and Canada Research Chair in Chinese Thought and Embodied Cognition, and also the co-director of the Center for Human Evolution, Cognition and Culture at the University of British Columbia. He's currently a fellow at the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. And his research interests include Chinese philosophy, religion, and morality, and the integration between the humanities and the sciences. He is the primary investigator on a $3 million grant from the Canadian Social Science and Humanities Research Council to investigate the topic of the evolution of religion and morality. He has written extensively and has won several awards for his writing. And his later book is called Trying Not to Try, Ancient China, Modern Science, and the Power of Spontaneity. All right, I'm going to, somebody has to be critical, or <laughs> it's no fun. So I'm going to be mildly critical, and I, I really see it more as a corrective. Uh, I basically am in agreement with the, the basic lines of this book, uh, The Bonobo and the Atheist. So I think the most important take-home from this book is this critique of top-down morality. Uh, top-down morality is one term you could use. I would use the term rationalist morality. 
So the, ra- the idea behind rationalist morality is the, that human reasoning, judgment, and decision-making are disembodied. They're, they're not uh, structured by our embodiment in any significant way. They're propositional. They're fully conscious, so our reasoning processes are transparent to us, and they're cleanly separable from emotions. So this is what I'll, I'm characterizing as rationalist model of morality. And this has dominated Western ethics, especially in the last couple hundred years, and has been widely and extensively critiqued for the past couple decades. So one of the movements in moral psychology has been to call into question this rationalist model of ethics. So um, I don't have time to go through the literature on this. I have a couple pieces on this where I do surveys, so I'll just refer you to those. Very quickly running through the highlights of the critiques are, first of all, the crucial uh, role of emotion in morality, that that morality is coming out of emotion. So uh, John Height and his colleague, social intuitionist model, that it's the sentiments that come first and then we invent rationalizations later to explain or justify our behavior to others. The work of people like Antonio Damasio on the crucial role of emotions and human rationality, anything we'd want to call rational human behavior, is grounded in emotional reactions. And this group of neo-Humean philosophers, people like Sean Nichols, Jesse Prince, Josh Green, you could mention as well, who are trying to update Hume in a uh, empirically responsible manner, talking about how the the emotional nature of morality is grounded in in the way the brain works. So morality is very crucial, uh, crucially dependent on emotion. It's also clear that morality, when we talk about morality, it's really a blanket term for separate, discrete reactions, emotional reactions. So it's it's a general term for what are modular reactions. So we've talked about empathy, so this is shared with uh, many uh, primates and other mammals. Uh, Empathy, the justice reaction we see in the capuchin monkeys rejecting unfair offers. These are discrete emotions. So uh, Sarah's told you about the ultimatum game, saved me a lot of time. People reject, no one acts like a rational agent in the ultimatum game. Uh, No one accepts the rational offer. Very uh, nice uh, fMRI studies have shown this is a result of an emotional reaction. So when people are confronted with unfair offers, they have a negative emotional reaction. And the rejection threshold varies cross-culturally, but it's present cross-culturally. So it seems to be a basic uh, reaction that we probably share with other primates that then can get tuned up and down by cultural training. But it does seem to be universal. Uh, Also discussed in shame. That hasn't been talked about much yet. Um, But this seems to be an important uh, motion in in moral reaction. So Paul Rosen, John Haidt, and uh, uh, Paul Bloom have done some work on this. The role in which shame, disgust and shame, are are informing certain types of purity-style moral judgments. So innate moral emotions, the important thing to see here is that they're each unique in terms of their trigger conditions. They have different trigger conditions in the environment. They have different uh, phenomenological profiles. The subjective feeling that you have in empathy is very different from the feeling you have when you're angry about an unfair offer. They lead to different objective behaviors. The behaviors are going to be completely different. So in other words, the entailments of these emotions are completely separate. And this suggests they're modular. We have these modular moral emotions. And this doesn't sit very well with the idea that moral reasoning is amodal and universal. So this is another problem with the rationalist model is that um, there's not like a a moral faculty that's somehow uh, the same across all these different types of reactions. Morality is modular. So another challenge to rationalism, this is something mentioned by uh, Professor DeWall in his book, is just the automaticity of human behavior. Evolution seems to have offloaded the vast bulk of our decision-making and judgment formation onto automatic unconscious systems. Uh, We're not uh, reasoning all the time about what it is we're doing. 
And that's because these systems are fast and they're frugal and they're reliable. Uh, our, our cognitive control, conscious reasoning is very expensive and it's very slow. So that means most of everyday judgment decision making is unconscious and automatic. So this idea that we're walking around constantly consulting maxims, we're trying to do utilitarian calculations, is just completely psychologically unrealistic. Human beings aren't built this way. It's not how we work. Another uh, challenge. Another important challenge is that thought seems to be image-based. So, um, so we're here at Emory, a colleague of uh, uh, Professor DeWall and Macaulay, uh, Larry Barcelo, has developed what he calls a perceptual symbol account. So arguing that abstract symbols are derived from and always grounded in perception. We don't think in completely amodal abstract terms. Our, our, our concepts are structured by perception. People like Lakoff and Johnson with conceptual metaphor theory have argued that sensory motor analog patterns are the basis of abstract thought. So the entailments, the way in which we reason about things, is coming from analogical imagistic reasoning. It's coming from our embodied experience in the world. And this is important for morality because it, has, it really has implications on how we use categories. So it's, it's clear that the way categories are employed by human beings, at least in hot cognition and online tasks, is not clear-cut Arist Aristotelian categories. It's radial prototype based. We're referring to images that we've developed, that we've been trained up on, and we're trying to match new experience to these stored images. So it moral reasoning in this case requires imagination. It requires uh, training people up on imagistic models and getting them to be better and better at uh, applying those to new, new instances, new examples. So uh, the central argument in the bonobo and the atheist is to uh, replace top-down rationalist models with bottom-up or emotionally grounded models. And I think there's a lot to this, but I think there are some, some issues with uh, taking this too strongly. And so I want to walk through a couple of these. One of them, obviously, is that innate emotions in the raw form are not enough. So we don't want to, uh, the innate emotions that we're born with as children um, are not, I don't want my three-year-old to be a model of how we're going to act as grown-ups. But of course, we develop new emotions uh, over the course of our development as children. So Professor DeWall talks about this community concern that we develop that seems to come online naturally for primates and including human beings. And it's based essentially on kin selection and reciprocal altruism. So you, you're share, I'm sharing genes with you or I can keep track of our interactions and shun you or punish you if you're not fair to me. Uh, and these again are what uh, uh, Bob McCauley would call maturationally natural things. They tend to develop reliably in human beings and other primates. The problem is they're evolved for small scale societies. So the evolutionary context in which they've evolved is one in which we can track other people. So the, the context that we share with other primates is this small group uh, context where we actually, where things like reciprocal altruism can actually work because we're keeping track of people. The problem here, and this is where I think the key problem is with the, uh, taking the bottom up too seriously, is that these, these emotions need serious extension and modification to work in the kind of societies we live in now. So about you know, 12,000 years ago in the Near East, uh, more recently in China, several places independently, people had this radical change in lifestyle where we started living in large-scale societies. 
and we have to interact. Large-scale societies, we're interacting with, we're having one-off interactions with anonymous strangers all the time. Something else besides kin selection and reciprocal altruism have to be going on here. They, they can't work. And there's a lot of different theories about what that the secret uh, sauce is, this extra something could be institutions. At UBC, we've been arguing that religion and certain type of religion and a certain type of uh, religiously informed philosophy is actually a response to this tension. It's a way to extend our innate emotions in a way that allow us to live in large-scale societies. So I would argue that bottom-up in this sense is not enough, at least for us. Maybe it's, it would be enough if we were living in small-scale societies. We still need philosophy and religion, just not the kind with which Professor DeWall is familiar. So not all philosophy religion is rationalist, uh, right or wrong, there's the it depends form of uh, ethics. And this is where the, the title of my talk, The Bonobo and the Virtue Ethicist. I think really the uh, other important model of ethics, virtue ethics, actually fits in much better with this emphasis on bottom-up approaches, but also uh, extends and corrects it in certain ways. So virtue ethics is, uh, I think most people in the room will know, is associated with people like Aristotle, medieval philosophers, the early Confucians. I think most Buddhist uh, philosophers were virtue ethicists, but most people uh, around the world have been virtue ethicists until relatively recently in the West. Um, virtue ethics, very briefly, is based on uh, ethical reasoning and, is, and behavior is based on developing dispositions, these things called virtues, so normatively valued dispositions to act in a certain way. They're emotional. They contain both emotional and cognitive cognitive content, so their emotional cognitive responses to perceive value in the world. They're self-activating and automatic, so this gets around the problem of cognitive control and the limits of our conscious mind because you're not relying on that. It's a hot cognition. You're, you're training your hot cognition in a certain way. Um, so rather than uh, kind of having to choose top down or bottom up, the virtue ethical model is based, I'd call it a grounded morality. So it's a morality where we're grounding ethics in our innate responses, but extending and training them in various ways. And we do this in different virtue ethical traditions, do it in different ways. Uh, what's common to all of them is embodied training, so using ritual, using music, using all sorts of uh, uh, forms to uh, stories to train people up. And importantly, and this is crucial, always guided by social values and norms. So when in a virtue ethic, you can't get away from this problem of how you ground your ethics. I want to very briefly just talk about one virtue ethicist uh, that I'm familiar with, this uh, figure Mencius, 4th century uh, BC Confucian, because I think uh, the model developed by Mencius is very plausible from a, a modern psychological perspective, evolutionary perspective. For Mencius, self-cultivation is explicitly modeled on agriculture or gardening. Uh, so the agriculture water management metaphors he uses a lot. Um, so the idea is the heart-mind, the center of cognition, the locus of what we would want to call rational thought, is guiding the development of our innate nature. So we're born with a nature that part of it we share with other species, Mencius thinks. Part of it's unique to humans. I think if we wanted to update that a little bit, we'd say part of it's unique maybe to the primate line. Um, but the heart-mind is going to shape it in a certain way. That's non-coercive. And this is interesting. It's where he's very different um, from this uh, Huxley's model of gardening. So for, for Huxley, gardening is about coercively keeping the weeds down. For Mencius, his model of gardening is that you're helping the sprouts grow. So we have these moral sprouts. They want to grow into full virtues in the same way that a barley sprout wants to grow into a full, fully developed barley plant, you just need to help. So you need to do some weeding and watering, but the, the emphasis is really that it's non-coercive and also that it's gradual. 
And what I found very interesting about the bonobo and the atheist is this uh, passage near the end where Professor DeWall is saying, you know, we can't, this idea of pe people like Peter Singer where we could just kind of force ourselves to be compassionate to everyone or uh, care for everyone equally is just psychologically unrealistic. The exact same debate happened in the 4th century BC in China where Mencius is arguing against the Moists. So there were some rationalists in early China, these Moists who were arguing for impartial caring. And Mencius' argument is identical to <laughs> Professor DeWall's. This is just not psychologically realistic. We're just naturally going to care about our family uh, more than others, and so we've got to work with that. So morality for Mencius is based upon these gut reactions, these emotions, sprouts or hearts. There's four of them in Mencius's view, four pillars if you want to think of it that way. They're uh, intelligent emotional responses to the perception of value in the world, and they require guided introspection uh, for us to understand them. So very quickly, one of the examples is compassion. Mencius in one dialogue meets this king who says, you know, I Mencius says, you can be a virtuous king. And he says, no, I really basically like to oppress people and drink and hang out with my concubines. I'm not very virtuous. And Mencius says, well, I heard this story about how you saw an ox being led to slaughter and you spared it. Is that true? And he gets, what he gets the king to do is not only just admit that he did this, but, but reflect on what he was feeling. And so I think in this case, Mencius is functioning like a kind of moral psychoanalysis. He's saying, or like a, someone who's training someone to appreciate wine. You know, think about what you felt. Think about how it's different from other things you might have felt. And then he says, we want to think about how you can extend it. So using imagination and training, extend it to others. And as he says at one place, take this heart you had here, this feeling of compassion you had for the ox, and apply it to your common people who you're oppressing and making to suffer. And you're not feeling the compassion there. So you need to extend, literally tway, push your uh, compassion to other people. Uh, so this extension is happening through analogy and metaphor being supplemented with ritual and traditional narratives. It's a very embodied process that Mencius is proposing. And uh, even the content of the sprouts, these four sprouts, seems pretty plausible. So the two most important sprouts are, first of all, ren, or benevolence, compassion. And again, there seems to be a basic primate uh, reaction. That's what's going on in, in 1A7 with the king. It seems to be a basic, not just primate, but malian emotion. Um, another important sprout is a sprout of E, or righteousness. And the story that Mencius uses to uh, describe this is basically the capuchin monkey experiment. He says, imagine someone who really needs a bowl of soup, they're starving, is given a bowl of soup, but in a, uh, in, uh, a disrespectful manner. So I give you the soup, but I spit in it first. It's still perfectly edible and nutritious. He says that the, the beggar will refuse the soup out of just, I don't do that. So that feeling of I will not accept this, I think is structurally, psychologically very similar to the reaction of the capuchin monkeys uh, when uh, presented with a cucumber and is similar to ultimatum game behavior in human beings and, and children. So to conclude, morality, can we then say we can have morality without religion? Um, I would say not. And I think it's because social, we, there's an importantly crucial role being played by social values in virtue ethical training. Um, unlike deontology or, or utilitarianism, the weakness of virtue ethics, I think, is it doesn't have a really clear meta-ethics. It doesn't tell you where the values are coming from that you're going to be training people in. And traditionally, this, this meta-ethical view has just been a substantive religious world 
worldview that, that these people have shared. So for Mencius, it's uh, theological. How do we know we need to value the hearts, the moral hearts over our other tendencies? Well, it's because heaven wants us to. Heaven gave us these things, and we have to develop to the fullest what heaven has given us, uh, these moral tendencies. Um, I think that by their very nature, these social values that are going to undergird, that will tell a virtue ethicist what tendencies to foster and which ones to suppress, are going to be metaphysical and quasi-religious, not empirically verifiable. And uh, this would involve me getting into Charles Taylor's view about the role of strong evaluations, which I don't have time to do. But very quickly, living, and he's arguing that living inside a metaphysical framework that gives you normative guidance is part of the transcendental condition of being human. Um, I think we can naturalize Taylor. So uh, it's not a kind of spooky metaphysical foundation of personhood. It's actually psychologically speaking part of our basic cognitive makeup to be guided by strong moral evaluations that don't fall naturally out of science or empirical facts about the world. Um, and perhaps this is just true of large-scale societies, so living in large-scale societies. But in any case, the morality-religion connection may be a Johnny-come-lately, but that's because we're living in a completely new environment for the last 12,000, 10,000, 6,000 years. Um, so morality without religion, not in any simple sense, I don't think. And we could talk about this in Q&A, but I still think this is an important connection. So the bonobo and the virtue ethicist, what can we learn? Formulating and revising our social values values needs to be guided by our understanding of our evolved primate nature and the connections, the way in which morality is grounded in this commonality we share with other closely related species. And our models of education and reasoning need to work within the parameters defined by our evolved embodied cognition. Thanks. Thank you, Ted. And our last panelist for today, before we open up for questions, is Azim Sarif. Azim is an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Oregon, where he's directing the Culture and Morality Lab. His research explores the psychology of religion with a focus on pro-social and anti-social behavior. His work has been published in some of the top journals in psychology, as well as general science. And he has received several awards for this work, including the Canadian Psychological Association's Excellence in Research Dissertation Award, and the Margaret Gorman Early Career Award. Please welcome Azim Sarif. So let me get my um, thank yous out of the way to begin with. So first of all, I want to thank uh, the Bonobo and the Atheist. It was really just a delightful book to read. It was a wonderful uh, uh, collection of these observations, really, really kind of heartwarming observations about uh, Bonobos and other pro-social animals. I also want to thank Demetrius for organizing this. Uh, it's very nice to be invited. So when I was trying to reconcile the title of the book, The Bonobo and the Atheist, with the title of this panel, Morality Without God, my assumption is that the intention was that this is something that the bonobo and the atheist share. Both of them have a morality without God. What I would do, though, is I would caution against drawing too literal a connection between these two things. Because what I think we're dealing with here is actually two different moralities. One of which is a morality prior to the belief in God. A subtractive morality. Whereas the other one is what we could call maybe a, a post-God morality. And in that sense, the atheist and the bonobo represent uh, two ends of a transition through uh, morality with God. So that's what I want to talk about. 
uh, I would say that there's an implied directionality here, uh, part of which needs correcting. So obviously we didn't evolve from bonobos. They are our cousins, not our ancestors. But I think uh, the point in some way was that they were being used in the book to represent our animal nature, so our animal instincts that are sort of pre-civilization. The idea being that if you see morality here and morality here, we can make the assumption that there was something similar, some similar type of morality there. Sir, would that be accurate that our shared, our shared ancestor had the same type of morality? Okay. Okay, great. Um, so, we can, sorry, we can at the very least replace this idea of uh, our cousin, the bonobo, with somebody who actually is our ancestor, who we could just consider the pre-civilization, pre-religion, uh, a past, the ancestor, our animal nature who is reacting in the same way that the bonobo does. So how did we get from here to there? Let's focus on this transition first. Now, uh, my talk actually dovetails well from Ted's talk because the explanation of how and why morality is associated with God relates to a theory that was mentioned in, in Professor DeWall's book that has been discussed by myself and Aranor and Zion and Ted and Demetrius and many others that the reason we have this connection between morality and God is because of the pro-social contributions that religion actually made to a society, as Ted alluded to. Now, the most comprehensive review of this is probably this new behavioral brain sciences paper that we put together. And though it's a very long piece with uh, many commentaries, the actual idea is pretty simple. It is that uh, we have uh, moral instincts which are sufficient for regulating the social relationships in small groups. As we got into larger groups, though, they became uh, inadequate. As a result, the special sauce, as Ted alluded to, we needed some sort of cultural solution to allow us to augment our existing moral instincts, to have a larger social harmonious group, and that was uh, religion. Religion offered a system of these rules and beliefs uh, and, and ideas of supernatural punishment that were increasingly effective. Um, now, one of the mechanisms by which this happened is this idea of a monitoring punishing supernatural agent. So whereas in a small group of 60 hunter and gatherers, if you cheat, uh, say if you cheat at hunting, as there's this vivid example in Professor DeWall's book, the idea is gonna get out there. The, uh, the recognition that you cheated is gonna get out there, your reputation is gonna be slaughtered as a result. But as you have a much larger society, that becomes much more difficult. Your reputation can not follow you were you to interact with anonymous strangers who don't know the anonymous strangers that you cheated with before. And so for that, if you have the belief in a monitoring agent which sees you even when uh, earthly eyes don't see you, that can ensure compliance in times when you're actually anonymous from a human perspective but not anonymous from uh, the perspective of the gods. And so you have uh, Marduk, uh, the god with the four eyes so he can see everything and the four ears so he can hear everything emerging in ancient Babylon when it was a city of 60,000 people. Now, we review evidence for this in the Behavioral and Brain Sciences paper, but I'll make two quick points. One is that this is not uh, a characteristic feature of all societies at all times or even most societies, but what we do see is this type of 
God that is monitoring and moralizing seems to emerge more frequently in the types of societies where they're needed most, where cooperation is, and the compliance for cooperation is needed most. That is, larger societies, as well as societies that have particular resource shortages which require that level of cooperation. There's also accumulating experimental evidence from social psychology showing that if you remind people of these ideas, their ideas of these supernatural agents, they do actually become more moral. So one of the studies that we did that was mentioned in Professor Duval's book, we did this about 10 years ago, is we used a priming technique to implicitly remind people of the ideas of God and then had people play the dictator game. The dictator game is like the ultimatum game, except that the person who's receiving the money has no decision whatsoever about whether anybody receives money. It's just the dictator decides how much of the allotment they get they're going to split with the stranger. In a control condition, out of the $10 that people were given, they didn't share very much, just around $2.50. But when they were implicitly reminded of the idea of religion, it came up near that $5 level, which would represent an equitable split of $10. Now, important thing to mention here is that what we're seeing here is not a reminder of the or not uh, a motivator of the, uh, the, the fairness norm. The fairness norm, we all know what the fair thing to do in the situation is, and that's probably rooted in these moral instincts that we've heard talked about. What's important here is that the idea of a supernatural agent ensures compliance with the uh, fairness norm that we all already hold. And there have been a number of studies uh, since then that have used different techniques and also different measures of pro-social or moral behavior, including measures of cooperation, measures of cheating. Again, in each of those situations, we know it's bad to cheat. What the religious prime does is ensures that we resist our self-interest and comply with that norm that we know exists. I'm going to skip this for now. Um, okay, so that, I think, is one of the reasons how we got from our pre-religion, pre-civilization moral instincts to a morality with God. Now let's talk about this other transition, the more recent transition. So we, I, I hesitate to, to hit the secularization point too hard because I know there's mixed evidence for it. I also know that in a crowd like this, secularization is probably the one thing that will put us all out of a job. So I'm not going to hit it too hard, but I do want to emphasize that there are there is particular evidence for uh, a morality that does exist in more secular societies that deviates from the morality with God. Um, so we have all heard all the evidence showing that there's a relationship between religion and happiness, a positive relationship. More religious people tend to be happier. But if you look across countries, you find that the least religious countries are the happiest. Um, and the non-religious countries that were forced to be that way, that had top-down control, rather than an organic shift to being non-religious, deviate from the regression line the most. And what you find is that that connection between religion and happiness doesn't seem to exist in places where religion is not the norm. So here you can see that in... This is going to be hard for you guys to read, but you can see that in uh, countries that are in the most religious countries, the top quartile of religious countries, there is this significant difference between the life uh, satisfaction of the highly religious from the low religious, as well as their positive feelings and their negative feelings. 
But when you look at the countries that are in the lowest quartile of religiosity, you see two things. One of which is there's no difference between any of these things. The second of which is that all of these are better. Life satisfaction is higher, positive feelings are higher, and negative feelings are lower. All right. We've all heard that there is this association between religion and uh, better health and longevity. But if you look across countries, you find that the least religious countries are the ones which have the longest life expectancy. It turns out again that this connection between longevity and religion seems to only exist in those places where religion is the norm, that is where it's prevalent and socially desirable. And we know that religion is related to trust and pro-social behavior, but if you look at the agreement with the, the statement that most people can be trusted, you see that the least religious people hold that the most are, are the places where most people say that they can trust most other people. So why are we seeing that? Well, let's just formalize this a little bit. It seems like to get from here to here, we go from the pre-Holocene, pre-civilization, pre-religion morality, we add God, then we take God away, and then we add X, and then we get to this morality without God. Now the question is, what is X? One of the studies that I mentioned before, the dictator game study, if you split the participants that we had in the study by their dispositional religiosity, whether they came in as theists or non-theists, you find that the theists responded quite substantially to the religious prime, but you didn't find that effect on the non-theists. And we've done a meta-analysis of all these studies that have used this, the same type of idea, that have tested this idea of the religious priming effect on pro-sociality, and we find that that's consistent. There's a large effect on people who are religious, and there's absolutely null effect on people who are non-religious. But in this condition, we had a third, in this study, we had a third condition, which primed people with these ideas of secular institutions of justice, things like courts, police, contract enforcement. And what you found there is that it did increase uh, cooperation, it did increase generosity in this task, similar to the way that the religious prime did, but uh, not only did it do so for theists, it also did so for non-theists. So in a society where you have a mix of people who are both religious and non-religious, your religious prime, your religious ideas are not going to be sufficient to elicit compliance with those moral norms from everybody, whereas a reliance on secular institutions might just do so. So I think, oh, and yeah, you're getting tired of seeing this graph, but if you look across countries, the least religious countries are also the ones that seem to have the highest uh, rule of law. So what is X? What is that secret sauce that we can add, if not religion? I think the shift from institutions from institutions that are enforcing religious punishment to institutions that are enforcing the rule of law is one of them. I think another one is a shift from a morality based on rule following, especially rule following based on divine commandment, to one based on consequentialism. Jared Piazza has some very interesting uh, research showing that if you test people, uh, whether it's okay to steal, whether it's okay to kill, whether it's okay to cheat, if there will be a benefit, if it will be a greater consequence for the greatest number of people, religious people are much more likely to say no, even if more people benefit. It's uh, wrong to steal, it's wrong to cheat, whereas people who are non-religious are, are going to be driven by the consequence rather than the rule itself. 
So we discuss this and some other ideas for what the secret sauce might be in this recent uh, Trends in Cognitive Science paper that we did with uh, Jared Piazza and my graduate student, Stephanie Kramer. And I'm happy to discuss this and the other things which might fall under this category uh, in the Q&A or afterwards. Thank you. Are you having a Q&A? Thank you very much, Azim. Uh, and many thanks to all of our panelists. I would like to invite them all up here now, and we can get some questions from the floor as well as from each other. Uh, I would like to start this final Q&A session by offering Professor Duval the chance for some short responses to the commentators. All right. Well, there's, there's too much for me to comment on, really. <laughs> Um, I was interested by the re reference to Mencius. I remember reading Mencius, and, and I think I meant... I, I wrote a book, uh, Good, Na Good Natured, which was about the evolution of morality, where I didn't talk about religion at all, and at that point I was very interested in Mencius. And um, the emphasis on, on the emotions that he has and that I have and that I think all of the speakers had um, is at the moment very relevant. I'm just back from Europe where the whole discussion turns about, about refugees, of course, and about the terrorist acts. And here in the U.S. you have all this discussion about also immigrants, but also about health care and do we feel an obligation to provide health care to others. It's, all, it's basically all an appeal to empathy that we have in, in our political system, which is an, is an appeal to morality to some degree. And so I don't think, um, since we have only half an hour left, that I should be try to comment on each and every point that was made here by all the panel speakers and I think it's probably better to open this up to the room and have a discussion about what is the role, what is the, the role actually of religion and morality, is it a positive role and, or some claim it's a negative role and, and also uh, do most of you believe that human morality is grounded in certain evolutionary psychological tendencies that we have all right, Sarah Levine here at the American Academy of Religion headquarters. I'm just jumping in here for a minute because you can't quite hear the question in the recording. An audience member asked the participants to reflect on the role of terror in large and small groups. And Franz Duval begins his answer next. And can we translate terror into punishment? or? Because if we think in terms of punishment, it's of course... In primate groups, a very important factor is because pri all primate groups have hierarchies, and basically the hierarchy is one big system of regulation. And, and, and I, I know that people sometimes think that animals have emotions but don't control them, whereas we are marvelous at controlling the emotions. But um, the hierarchy is basically one big system of emotional control. Uh, you, you're a young male, you may want to mate with a female, but you can't because you're going to get beaten up or or you, you want to eat food and you cannot ex access it. And so controlling the emotions is the key to a hierarchical system. And um, 
our religions with the moralizing God, and maybe I should move to the other speakers for that, the moralizing God is also a punishing God. And, and already Freud said it's like a big alpha male. We, we turned the, the original alpha male into a God, and, and he's the one who's going to threaten us with, with hell and with punishment if we don't do what we're supposed to do. And so let me turn this over to the speakers who talked about the moralizing God, like Azim and... Yeah, you have your own mic. Yeah. You have one too. Okay. Uh, that's that's a good question. So the the idea of a punishing God seems to be more effective, uh, at least for ensuring moral compliance, than the idea of uh, a, a forgiving God or a rewarding God. So there's a number of studies that have looked at this now. We've found that uh, people who believe in a punishing God more than they believe in a forgiving God tend to cheat less on a on a lab-based task that we gave them priming the, uh, just the punitive aspects of religion versus the loving aspects of religion uh, tends to, well, only priming the, the negative punitive aspects of religion actually has an effect on moral intentions, whereas priming the positive aspects doesn't. And there's actually some studies showing that priming the forgiving nature of God actually increases cheating. And there's also some relationships between, cross-national relationships between the belief in hell predicting lower crime rates, whereas the belief in heaven predicts higher crime rates. So the idea of a punishing God and the, the terror of impending supernatural punishment, though it seems like a really base level one Colbergian, very you know, three-year-old morality that you're saying, well, we'll punish you, I'll hit you if you, know, if you eat the cookie, uh, it seems to be highly effective. And it seems to be one of the things that religion has exploited. Yeah. So the only thing I'd add to that is one of the, the ideas we're working with in our broad research network is that you, loving, a loving, kind, generous God is a kind of luxury you can have when you have really strong secular institutions. And so you can't get Unitarians until you have policemen. <laughs> and, and actually, one of the predictions we would make is if we look uh, diachronically at a society, we're looking at examples where we've got breakdowns in rule of law, and we want to try to track contents of things like sermons and see whether or not it is the case that you see as soon as things start to fall apart institution-wise, God gets mean and angry again and then comes, gets nice again when things get better. One thing I'll just add to that is, is, is it does make, make an important point that we're not saying that the only thing that religion and the elements that are built in religion do is to uh, ensure moral compliance. Some parts of religion, like the punishing God, do that, whereas other, other things, like the forgiving, loving God, will achieve other goals, which are also useful. Thank you very much for these um, fascinating talks. I have questions for uh, Franz Deval and Azim Sharif. Um, so, Franz Deval, you just said... Um, what do we do with um, refugees with who we don't typically have, or a lot of people don't have empathy with refugees? And not the entire population can meet these refugees face-to-face. -face. So are there other solutions from an evolutionary point of view how to solve that problem? You just mentioned the um, punishing God. Um, but then, and this is um, also what I'd like Azim Sharif to address, um, how does the image of a punishing God um, relate to this insider-outsider um, dynamic, uh, wouldn't you still be stuck with that problem that oftentimes um, the punishing God is um, partial for one's own group? And finally, the last question is, um, you, um, as I'm sure if you said, um, punishment um, is more motivating for pro-social behavior, but then there are those religious traditions that 
tune punishment down very strongly, like Protestantism. I know, of course, that's not true for a lot of evangelical groups, but still there are significant groups in Protestantism that, um, well, don't emphasize hell very strongly at all. So I'm wondering how you'd um, factor that in. Thank you. Yeah, I think the, um, the refugee crisis uh, and, and, and all our reactions to distant groups, so to speak, groups that we barely know or people who are quite different from us, they, um, they, they have changed with the, the growth of our societies. I don't think originally human empathy was intended for outsiders. It was not intended for other species either. We, we, we now show empathy for a stranded whale, which I don't think in the old days we would eat the whale probably, so we wouldn't, we wouldn't have that kind of empathy. So we have that capacity for empathy and it can be expanded and it, it takes some intellectual force to do that. It also takes bodies. So it's interesting that, for example, in the old days when people only had newspapers, if you would hear there was a tsunami in Japan, you would probably be unaffected by that. You would hear it too late anyway, but um, you, would hear, uh, you would not see images. And now we see video images of people. We see images of people crying, having lost their home, having lost their children, and we're very affected by bodies. And, and we now live in a world which has been made smaller by the media where we can bodily connect with these people and, this, and that taps into our old primate tendencies. And even though these people are different and far away, which, which hampers our empathy, uh, we, we also have the intellectual powers to want to expand our empathy. And so, for example, uh, if you take the Geneva Conventions, that's, that's something that from an evolutionary perspective is very hard to understand, is that you would show sympathy for your enemies. Um, but we, we, are, we have reached that point where we, we are willing to try that and to try to do that. It's, it's obviously very fragile in the sense that as soon as you, you're hungry or at war, you may lose that kind of sympathy. But um, we, we have the tendency, the intellectual power, to, to try to, to bring our natural empathy into those situations where originally it was not intended for, I think. Um, and, and the other question are more for Azim, I think. All right. Yeah, so I agree that there are, there are these limits to empathy. It's something that Paul Bloom and Jamil Zaki, uh, psychologists, have been talking about a lot, uh, particularly surrounding this issue of, of this in-group, out-group situation. Um, in terms of the in-group, out-group uh, parochialism of religious morality, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a problem. Though there are, I think, aspects of religion which lend themselves to a more universalist approach uh, and aspects which are more parochial in nature. And there have been some uh, psychological studies on this. So uh, in priming studies, what you find is that if you prime the idea of uh, the church, that'll make people uh, share more with an in-group at the expense of an out-group. If you prime the idea of God, this more devotional aspect, that actually does the opposite. It, it, it sparks this kind of more universal concern, uh, which makes people share with the out-group. Uh, there are some inconsistent uh, uh, mixed results on Buddhism. So uh, priming both Christians and Buddhists with Buddhism tends to make people, um, at least in two studies, it makes people less parochial. There's a third study in which it makes people more parochial. What you do find, though, is priming people with Christianity almost always makes people more parochial. So there is that, that problem that uh, these religions can be tuned towards uh, derogating the outgroup. 
Wait, wait, may, may I ask, because uh, was it last two weeks there was um, a study that you probably have an opinion on, which showed that um, children from atheist families, I believe, were more pro-social than children from religious families. Wasn't that sort of the, the crux of the study? Yes. Yeah. And how, how does that fit with, with your line of thinking, or do you think that the study was just very shoddy? Um, both. Uh, <laughs> the, it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting study. There's some um, issues with it, some statistical issues with it. Issues. Some methodological <laughs> issues with it. Um, uh, actually, the author of that uh, paper just sent me the data set finally last night, um, and I haven't got a chance to look at it yet because of this talk, but I will soon. Um, but it's an interesting paper, and I, I don't think it's, it's beyond the possibility that uh, in a, advanced countries uh, where you have children raised by atheists that we're talking about the, not the, the morality without God, but maybe the post-God morality where you need to find another mechanism to actually uh, compel people to act pro-socially. That mechanism might be based more on internalizing the norms uh, rather than just having them follow the rules. So uh, my, my graduate student, Stephanie Kramer, always brings up this example because she's a mother of young children where uh, if, you, if you threaten your kid with punishment, uh, he will comply to not take a cookie from the cookie jar when the punishment is salient. But when the, the, the back is turned, uh, because he hasn't grasped the idea of why he shouldn't take the cookie, he'll take it anyways. Whereas if, you, if you're able to internalize why you shouldn't cheat, why you shouldn't steal, uh, that might actually compel people to do it in more situations than, than uh, those that are just based on rules. Yeah, there's a, actually, internalization of rules is very important and has been tested on animals. A animals are generally not very good at it, but I remember an experiment where they had dogs in a room and they would tell the dog there was a bowl of meat right next to it, not to touch the meat. And then they would walk out of the room and film what the dog would do. And there were dog breeds, like the Basenjis, I believe, who within a second would be eating the meat. And there were other dog breeds who would sit next to the, the bowl and, and try to stare away and, and might sit there for 20 minutes without eating the meat. So, and that's internalization. Then they have internalized the rule. Um, and I think uh, there are several of these studies now of self-control in parrots and, and chimpanzees um, that indicate sort of the marshmallow type experiments that um, show that they have a capacity for that. Yeah. Ted, I thought your contrast between virtue ethics and rationalist, especially deontological ethics, was great. And I like this notion of a sort of cultural entailment or cultural shaping of of complex forms of morality through and from these original germs. One thing, though, would seem to be that when you're talking about the difference between a virtue ethics approach versus some of the particularly consequentialist accounts, you're still left with this question of, okay, with the consequentialist accounts, we sort of get a bit of that understanding of why thou shalt not can play such a large role in big god religions. But on the other hand, you know, when we're talking about Aristotle and the great souled man, you know, this is also a, a central principle with virtue ethics that you look for these models to emulate this sort of embodiment of culture's highest ideals and values. 
question then is, how do you go from the consequentialist, relatively simple three-year-old form of ethics that really probably does shape most human behavior to the virtue ethics ideal of really trying to cultivate a bunch of things which are not about not doing things, but doing things over and above to a ex- great extent? Um, virt- virtues are not just internalizations of rules. They are also positive motivations, and that's important. So the key for a virtue ethic is not just training you to not do X. And, and they still use maxims. So Confucius said, you know, don't impose onto others what you don't want done to you. Maxims, but maxims are not doing most of the work in a virtue ethical tradition. I really think they serve as kind of uh, just shorthand references to deeper types of motivations. The way you get trained is is through model emulation. So uh, the ancient sage kings, you need to model yourself on them. I think uh, Analects, so in the Analects there's this book. What's the benefit for whom? For Why would anyone model oneself on a high ideal if we're really talking about consequentialism? Because your society is telling you that this ideal is what it means to be a real human being. Um, and, you know, the issue, again, there's no... Virtue ethics tends not to have a, a whole story about how you get that ideal, right? How do you develop the paragons? In the case of Shunzi, there's an interesting... He's an early Confucian... Um, he seems to present a situation where you've got the meta-ethic gets formulated through consequential reasoning. So the sage king's his story about where culture comes from is we lived in a state of chaos, it's kind of Hobbesian state of war of all against all. The sage king saw this and they hated it. They had a negative emotional reaction. So there's a hot negative reaction. But then what they seem to do is switch into cold cognition for a little bit and go, huh, how would we set up a society where everyone could get enough, but some people got more, but it's because they deserved it. Um, and they figure that out. And a utilitarian would stop there, and then they would teach everyone else how to do that calculus. But the sage kings don't stop there. They then design rituals and music and stories and classics to get people to train their hot dispositions to accord with that insight that came through cold cognition. So I think one way to look at virtue ethics and its relationship to cold models like utilitarianism or maybe deontology, deontology is not very cold, I don't think, (laughs) utilitarianism is arguably cold, is that it's a kind of uh, time-delayed cognitive control. You have these uh, insights through cold cognition, but cold cognition is a very fragile read on which to hang anything because it's so limited, cognitive control is limited. So then they build them into your hot uh, uh, disposition so that you become the kind of person who just doesn't want to do bad things. You are presented with badness and you don't resist it, you just find it unappealing. And that's the positive side of virtue. It's not about, it becomes not about regulation, but about internalizing norms until you positively act in accordance with them spontaneously and effortlessly. Thank you. I've read most of uh, Professor DeWall's books, and I'm a huge fan, and I've learned a great deal, and I appreciate everybody else's presentations here. I have two questions that I suspect are related. Uh, Coming from a philosophical background, of course, there's an enormous debate about what's been called the naturalistic fallacy. Most of this is descriptive ethics. You tell us in great detail and in fascinating ways about how people do, in fact, make moral decisions or act. Uh, The bridge from is to ought is a question that I have for all of you. Uh, In what ways would any of you say you can cross that bridge from your descriptions of how people do in fact behave to the decision about what people ought to do. Sam Harris thinks he can 
run right across that bridge. Professor DeWall, I think, is skeptical about that, and I, I agree if that's, if that's accurate. The second related question, besides how do you make the bridge from is to ought, is it seems to me most people do a sort of implicit cost-benefit analysis. That's to say, uh, given all these moral principles, the ones that I decide to care about are the ones in which implicitly I've decided um, the costs to me are not greater than the benefits. For example, climate change. Most people who take the science seriously say that's, that's just the case. But the people that I know who think they're going to lose by taking that seriously just dismiss it. Uh, many people in this country currently are saying if we admit 10,000 refugees and only one of them might turn out to be a terrorist, no matter what principle you can use to describe how people behave, many people say simply, I'm not going to do that. So, so my two related questions are, how do you get from is to ought? Do, do you see any direct implications of your research to cross that bridge? And second, is there not implicitly a sort of cost-benefit analysis that's going on all the time that helps people decide what they care about and what they don't? And so that notwithstanding all the descriptive efforts that you all do, uh, we're still left with this question, why should I care if the costs to me seem greater than the benefit in the short run? Well, let me say something about the uh, naturalistic fallacy. Um, it is a very difficult problem, and, and obviously, I think at the conceptual level, it's not possible to really move from is to ought. If, if I demonstrate that chimpanzees murder each other, that, that, that doesn't give anyone an excuse, I feel, to murder somebody. Um, so, at that, and, and that's the level at which most philosophers operate. Uh, they, they operate at the conceptual level. But, of course, biologists and neuroscientists don't usually think in those terms. And, and um, th there are ways of bridging it in the behavior of animals in the sense that um, animals are, are, in a way, normative. In, in, the simplest example would be animals who, who, who rebuild a structure. Like you, you disturb the spider, the spider web, and the spider is going to work very hard to repair the web and to get it back to the original structure. And so there's a certain normativity in the behavior of the spider. He knows how, this, how the web should look like. And, and if you disturb an ant nest, you get the same thing, or a bird nest. But also in the behavior, in the social behavior, where it's more relevant for the issue of morality, you find that. So, for example, uh, I showed that animals, after a fight, they reconcile. That means that the, the relationship is disturbed. They don't want to live with that kind of relationship. They want to repair it back to the original context. The fairness studies, very similar. You, you get a certain distribution of, of goodies after a cooperation. You need to watch what you get, and if you're not happy, you need to protest, or you walk away from the deal. And uh, so you, you want to go back to, you want to move everything back to a, a certain relationship. Uh, hierarchy is another thing. It's like a, a, a subordinate monkey is insubordinate and, and attacks somebody that he shouldn't be attacking. He's going to get punished massively by the group. And so they're bringing him back to the place where he used to be. And so there's a certain normativity in the social behavior of animals. And I think that's maybe the connection where we should be looking for, is that the animals themselves have moved from is to ought. There's a certain normativity in their behavior, and I think that's maybe where we should be looking. Uh, at, the, at the conceptual level, at the higher levels of what kind of moral principles we follow, I don't think that bridge is easily crossed. 
And if I can just add a little bit on the cost-benefit question, I think there's often confusion between the actual cost to the animal and the emotional benefits and costs. So for instance, in the studies we look at with cooperation, um, yes, a dominant pays a short-term cost by foregoing the grape, letting their partner have it to maintain the benefit of the long-term relationship. But we, for all we know, the animal doesn't see it as a cost. I mean, I enjoy, if you enjoy helping people, if I like helping someone out because it makes me feel good, then what, we, if what natural selection has managed to do is create a mechanism by which these behaviors that are in the long-term good for us f feel good at the time. So you have to be careful what level of cost you're talking about when you make these assessments. One thought about the is to ought transition. Um, it seems to me that uh, um, what naturalistic approaches do is they inform us about uh, the transition from or the, the relationship between ought and can. And it seems to me that that's uh, every bit in some ways from a practical standpoint just as important. Um, we're learning about, in effect, what sorts of rules, if we were inclined to formulate rules, are ones that, um, that as it were, are even feasible. Uh, and um, it's not that, that naturalism is going to solve all the philosophers or humanity's traditional ethical problems, but it is going to, it seems to me, impose constraints on what's going to count as a viable response. Um, one of the, I just wanted to mention that one of the things I haven't heard in the discussion uh, maybe is the, the factor in human experience, and I, I wouldn't even say it's limited to human experience, of the kind of effect of um, awe and wonder and the mystical experience. So though we see a rise in secularity, um, like Diana Butler Bass has just recently written about uh, the, the, the also the rise in people claiming mystical experience. And the recent research, in, again, in hallucinogenics and mystical experience has pointed to the fact that when one has a mystical experience, one's, one's inner authority becomes much stronger. And so I think that a lot of what you were talking about in terms of the imagination is the crucial thing about moving from the is to ought and having that internalized empathy and internalized morality at a much deeper level because I would venture that I don't think there's much happening in terms of cost-benefit analysis in the refugee situation because if that were true then we would have a lot of a, a much different uh, view of the number of guns in this country so that's I would think I think the refugee response is a is a gut fear-based and race-based response and has very little to actually do with a cost-benefit analysis and I think that it's imagination, like Whitehead said, beauty, aesthetics, imagination uh, is an inherent value. And I think it's that that will take us more to that level of extending our empathy and, and morality. Am I the, I'm the religious studies guy, so I'm the default. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things uh, Charles Taylor has argued is that uh, one of the strange things about modern Western societies that you see is traditional religions are fading away. So the, you know, in most societies, you don't decide what religion you have. You just are born into some uh, social religion. 
What's going on in, uh, in the modern world is that's getting broken down, but it doesn't seem to then be the case that people just say, okay, we don't need religion anymore. They're often cobbling together new systems for themselves. And so when you talk about the rise of mysticism, you know, it's often things I find with my students that they, it's like a mix and match approach. They say, well, I really like this about Sufism and I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna start doing this kind of chanting that I get from this Buddhist tradition. So people cobbling together religious traditions out of bits and pieces of traditional ones. And I think what that represents is there is a need for that, a kind of psychological need for that. Um, the issue, the interesting issue is just they, because people are aware that they're the ones authoring these systems because they're doing it themselves, the question is whether they can still serve their same function because there's an arbitrariness to them when you've put it together that isn't the case when you've been born into it. Um, and that's an open empirical question. But obviously these things aren't going away and people's reported experiences of mysticism aren't going away because it seems to satisfy a, a basic human need. We only have time for one last short question. I'll try to make this very quick. Um, I'd just like to point out something that I think has been in the background through a lot of this conversation but hasn't been articulated is I haven't seen any, uh, I haven't seen too much description of morality on Jonathan Haidt's sort of uh, five factor model. It seems like most of what we've been talking about has been liberal morality in terms of uh, harm and fairness um, but not so much in terms of uh, sanctity or loyalty or other things and that makes me wonder whether we're dealing here with a prescriptive or a descriptive version of morality because if we're talking about a prescriptive version we can all say sure only harm and fairness count as morality and loyalty to a flag doesn't but if we want to actually understand what humans around the world have felt to be moral I think we need to take into account more conservative forms of morality like loyalty to a flag or to your caste um, obligations and so forth. And I'm not sure that your work with bonobos can, what, what would your response be there? Oh, you know, loyalty I don't think has anything to do with being liberal or conservative. Loyalty in terms of commitment and attachment is extremely common in the primate world. And I've had this argument with, I've even had a discussion with Peter Singer about it because the utilitarian view doesn't, doesn't sit well with me at all because Every primate will make a distinction between close kin and distant kin and between distant kin and, and, uh, and non-kin and between non-kin uh, of the own group and the other group. And, and so loyalty is built into our psychology. Loyalty and attachment are extremely deep into us and it has nothing to do with conservative or liberal in my, in my mind. And, and I think our moral systems do need to take that into account. That's why utilitarianism can never fly because it basically tells you that um, the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people is if all these people are exactly equal to you but your own child is not equal to another people's child. And, and so for, for the biologists that's a very silly position to take, this, this greater good for, 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 for a greater number of people. It's a very silly position to take because it cannot work given human biology and human psychology. Symbols, uh, that we, don't, we don't have primates using a lot of symbols. Um, they have loyalty to the group. Uh, chimpanzees are extremely xenophobic, uh, as opposed to bonobos who, who mingle between groups. But chimpanzees, they will go for the kill between groups. And so chimpanzees have that same sort of loyalty to the group that you're talking about. It's not symbolized in a flag, but I think the flag is just a, an icing on the cake, basically, compared to the, the more basic system.
we don't we don't have time for more questions. We do have time to say a big thank you to Professor Duval and our panelists for being here. And thank you all for coming. Have a good day.